0: Hello my friends, welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson and we passed another milestone this week. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we passed the 50,000 subscriber mark on the YouTube channel. Uh, and this week we passed the one million download mark on the the podcast there is a podcast version for those of you who didn't know uh I, I realize i have a face for radio and some of you have been wise enough to shift from the the video youtube to the audio uh podcast it's called unshaken saints because unshaken was already taken uh but the fact that that a million downloads uh, have have happened really does uh, amaze me some of you have been kind enough to to leave reviews and comments that I've been able to read and it really touched me just how, how kind you are uh, and the kinds of experiences you're having with the scriptures as you immerse yourself in them. Uh, for those of you who are listening on the, on the podcast, if you have a free second and can uh, leave some kind of a, a comment or uh, a review, uh, that does help get the word out as the Apple algorithm thinks, oh, there's, there's people watching this. We should, we should recommend this to others. And so that does, does help spread the word. Now, as far as the Word that we'll be studying today, we have four sections, and there's a lot. I, I think as far as number of verses is concerned, this is the, the most verses we've ever been asked to study in a week uh, by, with Come, Follow Me. Uh, I'll have to do some summarizing today to keep things from getting too long. We almost hit four hours last week, and I know that's, uh, that's probably overkill. Uh, my, my dream is half an hour a day of Scripture study. And that would be three and a half hours uh, if you do it, uh, if you split it up and watch it every day. Uh, and so, we, I, sorry I kept you for detention last week. Uh, but this week with section 102, 3, 4, and 5, this is still historically uh, the, the period of Zion's camp. The saints are being driven out of Jackson County, Missouri. All kinds of persecution taking place there. Uh, and so, like we saw last week in section 101, this parable that the Lord said about the, the servants that didn't get around to building the tower. And then the second half of the parable uh, about there needs to be a servant that gathers the strength of mine house, my warriors, my young men, uh, and heads back to redeem the vineyard uh, and cast down the towers and walls and scatter the watchmen of the enemy. Well, that's wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Joseph. That's Zion's camp and you need to lead it. Now, uh, it's interesting that if you were to study the Doctrine and Covenants uh, thematically or by, by topic, if you were studying the Missouri persecution and Zion's camp, you would go from section 98 to 101 to 103 to 105. Uh, it's kind of like skipping rocks over the, the surface of the Doctrine and Covenants. And, but those, the, the, that, those revelations are interrupted by some others. And uh, the more I, th- I think about that, and especially as Come, Follow Me is like, no, here's the sections. Uh, here's what we're covering. I'm so grateful for those interruptions. Because even though we have to, like, wait, where are we? Oh, yeah, back to Zion's camp. What's happening in the meantime keeps us from, from limiting our view, thinking that that's all the saints were up to. There were so many other things going on. We saw it last week where 98 and 101 were persecution, in Missouri, and get ready to send Zion's camp. But 99 and 100, sandwiched in the middle, were missionary sections. Uh, today we'll start with 102 uh, and by the time we get to 103 there's Zion's camp, 105 Zion's camp, but 102 has to do with some church organization, specifically they're setting up the high council in the Kirtland State Uh, and then back to Zion's camp 103, and then 104 uh, Well, what do we do with the United firm and how are we printing scripture and and, uh, providing for the poor and the needy Uh, and and what do we do with these stewardships and so on, And, and then 105, back to Zion's camp And what amazes me about this is, again, we think of persecution and the redemption of Zion and how do we do that? That seems to be on all the saints' mind. But in the midst of it all, that's not the only thing on the Lord's mind. Yes, you're up against opposition and persecution. Yes, you have Zion to redeem. But what should you be doing in the meantime? These interruption sections. You still need to proclaim the gospel. That's 99 and 100 you still need to continue organizing the church to perfect the saints. That's 102. And you need to be providing for the poor and the needy. That's 104. And all of this in the context of you've got to build a temple, both in Independence and in Kirtland. Uh, And so there's Redeem the Dead, even though they don't yet know that that's one of the main reasons that temples are are created. Do you catch the, the theme developing? in the midst of all of this persecution and opposition and in the midst of all this zeal to get to Zion as quickly as we can so that the world will be ready for the second coming. No, there's, we still need to proclaim the gospel and perfect the saints and redeem the dead and care for the poor and needy. The fourfold mission of the church is in the midst of all of this. And that that was mind-blowing to me as I, as I tried to take it all in and realize that in some ways perhaps uh, without the persecution taking place and the, the postponement of the redemption of Zion. We'll see that clearly in section 105 today. I almost get the sense that our Father in Heaven, like every father or mother who's trying to help teach their children how to walk, is slowly backpedaling. Always staying just within reach. The goal is right in front of you. Go redeem Zion. You could do it right now. There's, there's strength sufficient if you'll obey. So close enough that the child knows, okay, I'm safe, and the goal is very close, so I can afford to take a step forward. But at the same time, slowly backpedaling, because the child needs to learn to walk on its own. Yeah, that, like we've said so many times lately, that the the saints need to become a Zion people, on their way to building a Zion place. And so here's the Lord backpedaling. Oh, it's still close. No man knows the day nor the hour, but it's but I come quickly as Zion can be redeemed any day now, but take a step forward and proclaim the gospel because it will bless others and you along the way. Yes, Zion is close, but take a step forward and organize the church more, uh, more fully so that we can meet the needs of the members. Yes, Zion is close, but take another step forward and provide for the poor and the needy because people need to eat physically even as we're trying to share with them the truths of the gospel spiritually. And yes, Zion is close, but, but it'll never really arrive until you have a temple whereby I can endow you with power from on high. So, so yes, keep marching towards Zion, but that involves so many more things than the literal march from, in, from Kirtland to Independence. Uh, these, these interruption sections are worth interrupting Zion for because it's still part of the process of, of getting there. So with that, let's dive into the first interruption of the day, which is section 102. Now this one, for, for many members of the church, they're like, what? Is this, does this really deserve canonization? It's the, the minutes of a meeting uh, where, where they develop or organize the, the High Council in, in Kirtland. But what's amazing to me about section 102 well, in some ways, it's a preview of coming attractions. Okay, uh, We saw in Section 81 and Section 90 with Frederick G. Williams joining the First Presidency. But it wasn't yet the First Presidency. It was simply the Presidency of the High Priesthood. But there's three High Priests that are presiding. And then today in Section 102, we'll see that there's a High Council in Kirtland that consists of 12 church leaders to help uh, organize and, and preside over the work there. So three Presidents and then 12 uh, who are functioning together as a quorum. Hmm, that sounds uh, familiar. And again, it is in some ways, like I said, pre- preview of coming attractions. Uh, the presidency of the high priesthood eventually becomes the presiding quorum of the church, namely the first presidency. And and though the high council doesn't turn into the quorum of the twelve, they're separate organizations, there is still a sense of we need twelve p- uh, leaders to help organize the work, specifically in Kirtland now. Later, the Quorum of the Twelve will come on to lead the the work in all the church. And so to me, it's just another step, line upon line, precept upon precept, to get there. Uh, It also says something about what is worth turning into Scripture. One of the amazing things about the Doctrine and Covenants is the variety of material that, that is inside it. Doctrine and Covenants includes revelations. Well, I mean, they're all revelatory. But but what we would consider a a typical revelation, it contains commandments. It was the book of commandments originally, after all. Uh, It contains blessings, almost kind of priesthood or patriarchal type blessings. I saw that back in section 23. Uh, it contains callings, like section 47 where John Whitmer's called to be the church historian. It contains uh, p- clear prophecies, like the prophecy on war in section 87. It contains visions, like, uh, I mean, 76, it get, doesn't, doesn't get much better than that angelic ministrations there's section 2 section 13 it's uh, the translation of ancient records that's section 7 it's got Q&A sessions in 77 or 113 uh, there's letters that are canonized that's 121 2, 3 and here we see the minutes of a church meeting uh, in section 102 if you remember back to section 129 when the lord says that everything is spiritual unto me if you're a ward clerk uh, if you're uh, the relief society secretary uh, re- realize that even the notes you take in a meeting might be considered scripture to the Lord. And that's what we're getting in section 102. Now, specifically, the, this council comes together to, to organize the high council. Uh, and Orson Hyde, I believe, is the one taking notes. By the time he's done, and here's the, the meeting minutes, they hand them over to Joseph because they're a little concerned that they're not perfect. They said, Doubtless some errors have been committed in the things that they discussed and, and the plans that they created here. Uh, and that, that to me is, is amazing, especially when the, the minutes were done and they admitted, okay, it's probably not perfect. Uh, they give them to Joseph and they ask him by revelation to, to seek the Lord's guidance on any changes or corrections that should be made. This was our very best efforts. We're exercising our agency, uh, but we also need to seek inspiration. And so Joseph, will you go to the Lord and see if there's anything he wants to change? They said, Brother Joseph should make all necessary corrections by the spirit of inspiration. Well, what we have in section 102 is Joseph's corrected version by inspiration of those meeting minutes. But even then, they didn't consider it uh, done like final version. Again, that line upon line idea is amazing to me that they're, they're doing the best they can. They realize there's room for improvement. So Joseph, will you do that? Seek inspiration. But even then... Can God give us more eventually? Of course he can. So even after the council accepted this quote-unquote final version, uh, corrected by inspiration, they still left the door open for further correction or addition. In fact, we'll see three verses that were added a few years later. They said, If the president should hereafter discover any lack in the same, he should be privileged to fill it up. There's something about filling it up that to me is, is incredible. Again, a line upon line and precept upon precept approach. As President Nelson has said recently, the restoration is ongoing. We're not done yet. Many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God are yet to be revealed. And so take that uh, in, or have that in mind as we study Section 102, that this is a beautiful step forward as far as church organization is concerned. But even the people most involved in it Never considered things perfect to start, but on the way toward perfection. And allowed for that kind of flexibility for change and for growth and for for greater understanding. That flexibility is key. So many of the people that I work with that are really struggling in their faith, that had what I call or consider a brittle belief rather than a flexible faith. And it's like, nope, that's the way it was. Joseph Smith walked out of the sacred grove with the church handbook of instructions. He's like, eh, no, he didn't. And even the church handbook of instructions keeps changing as we learn and, and, and understand what we're up against in the world and are there better ways to organize things. In the, if we're proving contraries between humanity and divinity or between agency and inspiration, it's amazing to watch the Lord work with us, but he wants us to do a lot of work to think and ponder and to do our very best uh, efforts, uh, l- trusting that the Lord will guide us along the way. We have to provide momentum for God to begin to provide direction. Okay? You put, push down the gas pedal, the Lord will start taking care of the, of the steering as we move forward. Well, verse 1, the minutes begin. This day a general council of 24 high priests assembled at the house of Joseph Smith, Jr. by revelation and proceeded to organize the High Council of the Church of Christ, which was to consist of 12 high priests and one or three presidents, as the case might require. I can picture uh, President M. Russell Ballard uh, smiling here because he's the one that more than anybody has talked about councils, uh, church councils and ward councils and and family councils, uh, the need to counsel in our councils. uh, And to see words uh, in verse 1 that to me jump off the page, to assemble, the need to to gather and combine our, our best insight, the scattered revelation, all of the pieces of the puzzle coming together, a word like revelation, a word like organize, a phrase like as the case might require. When do we need to come together and seek collective revelation to organize things better in our ward or in our quorum or class or in our home? So, what's happening here? In verse 2, the high council was appointed by revelation. There it is again, the Lord's behind this for the purpose of settling important difficulties, which might arise in the church, which could not be settled by the church or the bishop's council to the satisfaction of the parties. A bishop's council. So now we're starting to see bishoprics. Uh, under, and that's, so the difference between ward leadership and stake leadership. It's amazing to watch these this uh, organization develop the the ecclesiology for the technical term how is a church organized and run they're starting to understand it better and when do we go to the stake level well when we can't figure it out on the ward level verse two actually makes me think of Moses and Jethro in Exodus chapter eighteen when Moses is I mean Jethro sees his son-in-law uh, working himself to, to to into the grave basically that, that all day from morning till night. Uh, There's this long line of Israelites with issues that they need Moses to resolve for them. And Jethro is like, Moses, what are you doing? Uh, Have you ever heard of delegation? Evidently not. Uh, So let me explain some things. I actually love the way Jethro says it to him. He says, what is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone and all the people stand by thee from morning unto even? Did you catch his preposition? What are you doing to this people? I can picture Moses going, doing to them? What are you talking about? What, what am I doing for them? Everything. And, and Jethro would say, yeah, that's the problem. And you doing everything for them is doing a very negative thing to them because they're becoming increasingly dependent upon you. You can't do it all. Uh, and by delegating, it will not only save you, it will save them because they will grow up. They'll grow in capacity someone's going to eventually have to take your place. It would be a good idea for them to begin growing into that currently. I'm actually amazed, speaking of the High Council, how often those uh, members of the High Council, I mean, they're there with the the stake presidency all the time. They're in different wards speaking and and running smaller programs within the stake. It's amazing how often that is a a preparatory uh, opportunity that often gets them ready to serve as bishops or in stake presidencies. Uh, it's not always that way. Okay? The Lord can call whomever he calls, but it really is amazing to so often see someone who, who has been delegated responsibility, preparing them then to take on larger responsibilities later. Now verse 3, we see them listed. Joseph Smith Jr., Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams were acknowledged presidents by the voice of the council. So there's the presidency of the high priesthood. It will soon become the, the first presidency of the church. And then the members of the high council, Joseph Smith Sr., John Smith, Joseph Coe, John Johnson, Martin Harris, John S. Carter, Jared Carter, Oliver Cowdery, Samuel H. Smith, Orson Hyde, Sylvester Smith, and Luke Johnson. High priests were chosen to be a standing council for the church by the unanimous voice of the council. You, start, you see unanimity there. That, the importance of that will be emphasized in Section 107 uh, that we'll get to soon. But it is interesting to go through the, this list of names. Some we recognize right off the, the, the bat. Others we don't. We see some family members in there. Uh, we see a variety of ages. Uh, it's interesting to even see Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery mentioned in the group. I sometimes wonder how they feel where they weren't in the first presidency. And yet they were among the three witnesses. Uh, Oliver Cowdery had been, was second elder of the church and, and participant in the restoration of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood. Uh, he still has some other uh, important roles to play in the history of the church as well. But again, it's not where we serve, but how. And to me, there's an important lesson there that Martin and Oliver don't look down at uh, Sidney Rigdon and on Frederick G. Williams. Look up to them, for now, for, because that is their calling and this is yours. It's amazing in the church to see, oh, so be nice to the people you preside over, because chances are, someday they will preside over you. Uh, the, the, these orbits that intersect uh, in our church service, to me, is a beautiful thing. And that, that I hope dramatizes to each of us that you're not above or below. That, that he that is chief among you can be servant of all, and everyone will have those kinds of opportunities. Verse 4, the above-named counselors were then asked whether they accepted their appointments and whether they would act in that office according to the law of heaven, to which they all answered that they accepted their appointments and would fill their offices according to the grace of God bestowed upon them. I always laugh in sacrament meeting when, when it's the sustaining of new callings and, and they stand up and all in favor, show by the up hand and you raise your hand. When the person themselves doesn't raise their hand, I always want to just go, you, you too. Uh, you, you said yes in the bishop's office. You need to say yes in front of everybody. Okay, that you're you're not doing this against your will. Uh, that you have you have accepted this, your appointment, and also if they're sustaining you, that that there's a trust there. Do you do you place the same trust in yourself? Better said, in the in the grace that God will give you. In verse five, the number composing the council who voted in the name and for the church. In appointing the above-named counselors were 43 as follows. Nine high priests, 17 elders, four priests, 13 members. Have you ever been a part of a, a solemn assembly? And and to go quorum by quorum and, and class by class, they're just different groups within the church, and everyone uh, from their unique vantage point is sustaining you and supporting you. We see that in 5. In verse 6, voted. And these are minutes, so this is what they're voting for. That the high council cannot have power to act without seven of the above named counselors or their regularly appointed successors are present. That's called a quorum. It might not be the entire group, but is there at least more than, than half? We can still function as a Kirtland high council as long as seven people are there. Where seven, these seven shall have power to appoint other high priests whom they may consider worthy and capable to act in the place of absent counselors. So yes, absent high counselors can be replaced. Uh, by, by someone else, but notice the two adjectives to describe them. They need to be worthy, and they need to be capable. Does so that remind you of the quote that Elder Bednar has shared with us saying, it's, it's, good to be cap- it's good to be worthy, but it's better to be worthy and competent. So here, worthy and capable. There, worthy and competent. I kept thinking about that and, and put, kind of putting the two side by side. So think about this divide. On the worthy side, you're open to inspiration. On the capable side, you're receiving information. On worthy, you have authority. But on capable, you have experience. We can line up divinity under worthy and humanity under capable. On the worthy side, you, you seek the spirit of God. But on the capable side, you develop your spiritual gifts. Attributes belong on the worthy side. But actions belong on the capable side. So if you are worthy that's a to be list and if you're capable that's a to do list. We have to understand that those two are not those two columns are not mutually exclusive. Can you imagine someone who is worthy but lacks capability? Think about yourself and which side of the line you're on. Are you more capable and need to work on your worthiness to to seek the inspiration of God and his involvement? Uh, or are you more worthy and, and sometimes struggle with your lack of capacity, in which case you can develop those talents and, and get more training and, and try to make yourself uh, more able to accomplish the work that God has, has before you. Combining the two is the ultimate goal. Verse 8, another uh, vote, voted that whenever any vacancy shall occur by the death, removal from office for transgression, or removal from the bounds of this church government, of any one of the above-named counselors, it should be filled by the nomination of the president or presidents, and sanctioned by the voice of a general council of high priests convened for that purpose to act in the name of the church. So again, we're talking replacements here. The early one was more of a, can, can you sub for me? Okay, I, I'm going to be out of town for, for a little while. This other one, if they're got three possibilities, they died, they were removed for transgression. Okay, they're no, they they might still be capable, but they're no longer worthy. Or three, they were removed from the bounds of church government. We could picture that of someone moving away or simply receiving a different calling. Okay? They're not in this bound of church government. The presidency makes that call. At least they nominate them. It's then sanctioned by the voice of the general council. There we have sustaining votes, okay? common consent. In verse 9, the president of the church, who is also the president of the council, is appointed by revelation and acknowledged in his administration by the voice of the church. So again, we're seeing kind of the vertical and the horizontal come together here. There's revelation, there's inspiration, but then there's also common consent uh, and the sustaining vote of the people that will be led. In 10, it is according to the dignity of his office that he should preside over the council of the church. And it is his privilege to be assisted by two other presidents appointed after the same manner that he himself was appointed. It's a privilege to be assisted Oh, I hope that's the case. Uh, as a as a counselor in several bishoprics, I hope it was a privilege for me to serve with such incredible leaders. I hope that they felt it a privilege not to be with me specifically, but just to have counselors. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for as a Moses for blessing me with an Aaron and a Hur to help lift my arms when they get heavy. Uh, that is a privilege to have fellow servants. It's one of the... I don't miss all the meetings uh, when I'm after, after a, a, a term of service in a bishopric, but I do miss the men. I do miss the, the members of the ward council that I got to spend time with, uh, these incredible men and women that were leading the work of God in our, in our little neighborhood. Uh, to, to see that kind of privilege of associating with fellow disciples, ready to consecrate their all, it's a beautiful thing. And there is a dignity. That, that belongs to these offices. Uh, I'm remembering when President, when Bruce R. McConkie, Elder McConkie was dying of bone cancer and near the end of his life it was painful to, to move uh, and yet he would wake up in the morning put on his, his white shirt and tie and suit coat and then lie back down in his bed because he couldn't go to the, the office and function. And I believe it was his son who came to him once and said, Dad, you can't even get out of the house. you It's okay. You can lie in bed. in. You don't have to get dressed for the day. And Elder McConkie said to him, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will look the part. To look the part, even when no one's watching, is amazing to me. There is a dignity to the office. In verse 11, In case of the absence of one or both of those who are appointed to assist him, he has power to preside over the council without an assistant. And in case he himself is absent, the other presidents have power to preside in his stead, both or either of them. So when any member of the presidency is present, the entire presidency is present through their shared keys and shared responsibility, shared authority. We saw that when Frederick G. Williams was added to the presidency, Okay, that they are equal with Joseph Smith in holding the keys of the kingdom. So if President Nelson can't be somewhere, as long as we have President Oaks or President Eyring, we have the authority of the First Presidency. And the same applies in a, in a stake presidency or in a bishopric or in a quorum or class presidency also. In verse 12, we see that as a pattern. That's what it's called here. Whenever a high council of the Church of Christ is regularly organized, according to the foregoing pattern, it shall be the duty of the twelve counselors to cast lots by numbers and thereby ascertain who of the twelve shall speak first Commencing with number one and so in succession to number twelve. This is a pattern for the Kirtland High Council, but it's a pattern that would be followed in a High Council in Zion or a High Council in any stake of Zion as they are beginning to spread across the earth. And so that's good. Follow the pattern. But I do, I'm interested in the end about this casting lots, uh, and, and just kind of roll the dice and we'll see who's who what order we're gonna we're gonna speak in. There's a lot of order that we do as far as seniority is concerned in the Quorum of the Twelve or even in the State High Council. But there's something about that. uh, What number are you? Let's start with number one and and go in succession to number twelve. Now, as a teacher, I'm interested in this approach. that Let's let's pass out numbers and we're going to start with one and go to twelve. Because what ends up happening that way? Everybody speaks. There's something to that. As a teacher, so often I'll ask a question and it's just kind of crickets. The crickets are the only ones participating. Bueller, Bueller, right? Uh, now, if you call on somebody by name before you ask the question, then you know they're going to answer. But because everyone else in class knew it wasn't their name called, they're like, I'm off the hook. Sometimes you'll ask the question and then you'll call on people. Would you respond and so on. But if they knew, we're all going to go around the circle and share our thoughts on this. Oh, okay, the the ball's in my court. I need to participate and contribute something. Remember that verse back in section 88 when it's talking about the the school of the prophets? And he says, To appoint among yourselves a teacher and let not all be spokesmen at once. So there's this idea of let's, let's number everyone. We don't want everyone speaking out of turn. But let one speak at a time and let all listen unto his sayings. That when all have spoken that all may be edified of all, and that every man may have an equal privilege. There's something about that equal privilege and that entire participation that I see ensured here in terms of let's number you 1 through 12 and then make sure that everybody gets to speak. I'm not saying that's the only way you can approach teaching. Uh, There's probably not time for that in most classes. But as as you're weighing in on these important difficulties, Oh, we need all the help we can get. We need every piece of the puzzle in, in this scattered revelation. Now in verse 13, we begin something more specific. Because what do well, what you mean by important difficulties? Now that could be anything. Okay? We're trying to perfect the saints here. That's why we're getting organized in our ecclesiology. But specifically, starting at verse 13 and going to about verse 22 or 23, what is the, the important difficulty that needs to be settled here? Remember, that's the role of the high council. Well, specifically, it's going to be church discipline. What we used to call church disciplinary councils, and now we call church membership councils. How does this work? In a way, this is like the judicial branch of the church uh, on a local level. I mean, if you're on the American frontier, and, and, or especially when you, once you get to Utah, and there's, there's, there is no government organization It's going to be the high council that comes together to discuss, like like it said, to settle the important difficulties. Difficulties as far as one person's worthiness based on transgressions in their own life or difficulties between people. How do we settle these kinds of issues when, when things come up between church members? Well, these next few verses are going to explain it. It's actually a fascinating approach. So 13, whenever this council convenes to act upon any case... So case kind of judicial, right? The 12 counselors shall consider whether it is a difficult one or not. If it's not, two only of the counselors shall speak upon it according to the form above written. Now, if it's harder than that, verse 14, if it be thought to be difficult, four should be appointed. If more difficult, six. But in no case shall more than six be appointed to speak. Now, this doesn't apply across the board because we already saw that number 1 through 12 and let everybody speak from 1 to 12. But that's more in terms of How do we run the church? Or how do we solve big problems? We want every piece of the the puzzle to come together. But when it comes to a church disciplinary council, a church membership council, uh, having six people speak uh, at max and two at minimum, notice they're all even numbers, two, four, six. What's that all about? Well, we're going to soon see, in fact, verse 15 will let us know, the accused in all cases has a right to one half of the council. To prevent insult or injustice. So now we understand why it's an even number. Uh, If it's a simple case, two is fine. But one person needs to be, it's like lawyer for the prosecution and lawyer for the defense. Uh, That there needs you will always have a friend in court. Let's put it that way. No matter what you've done, you are guaranteed half the counsel. I've sometimes seen, oh, ex-Latter-day Saints or simply non-members try to paint the picture of a church disciplinary council, a church court, that it's some cold, unfeeling uh, kind of gotcha moment that we're trying to throw the book at you and kick you out of the church. As a member of of several bishoprics, I've been involved in a lot of disciplinary councils, and they are some of the most spiritual experiences that I've ever been a part of. And I think I would say the same for the person involved, uh, because the atonement is so is so present in those circumstances. The the hope of the council is to help this person repent and overcome their sins. It is not about insulting them. It's not about throwing the book at them. It's it's guaranteed in this case. There must be no insult. There must be no injustice. We will make sure that there are people on your side. I remember hearing from, from someone that was in a disciplinary council once, Uh, that the, the bishop reassured the person that was there, you are not on trial. We all are. We are all trying to come unto Christ. He is the judge of each of us. He will judge you for the way you have lived, but he'll judge us for the way we have. And we're just trying to help you tap into the atoning power of Jesus Christ, just as we try to do the same ourselves. Now, why max out at six? Why not just all have all 12 and go six and six and, and cover both bases? I, I wonder if part of it is this thought of, we don't want overkill. We saw it in verse 13. is, Well, how difficult is it? Is this two, four, or six? We saw that with Moses and Jethro. You're going to appoint all these lesser leaders and see how far up the chain does this particular, particular difficulty need to rise. Uh, This one, you don't need to bother Moses about. We can handle it on this. We saw that in this revelation too. Can the bishop's council take care of it? Can it be done on a ward level or does it need to go to the stake? And there's times where it goes beyond the stake and you're with general authorities. But in this case, I wonder, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if six max, not only does it avoid the overkill of people just speaking to speak, Uh, it's like everything's already been said by by the first six people and now it's just we're just multiplying words uh, or speaking to be just to be heard. That sometimes happens in quorums and classes. But could it also be that in, in the most difficult cases with three speaking for and three speaking against, there still needs to be others who aren't speaking at all in terms of trying to prove a point. They're just listening and they're trying to be objective observers it's like we have the prosecution and we have the defense. Well, how about a jury? Uh, we've got the judges, the presidency, but we, we, need, we need everything covered in this court case, in this courtroom. Mm. And to be an impartial jury, uh, to try to find, to weigh the evidence and try to understand what... I mean, and, and the interesting thing, too, is you don't know which of these groups you're going to be. So in a way, you have to be prepared for all of them which does ensure a level of, of objectivity. I mean, you see that sometimes in, in debate, where it's like, here's the issue, and we're going to kind of flip the coin and see which of you will be pro and which will be, will be con. How, who's, a, who's for it and who's against it? We, that's what happens in verse 16. The counselors appointed to speak before the council are to present the case after the evidence is examined in its true light before the council, and every man is to speak according to equity and justice. 17, those counselors who draw even numbers, that is 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12, are the individuals who are to stand up in behalf of the accused and prevent insult and injustice. Now, what's he saying in 16 and 17? Again, this is kind of the the luck of the draw that I was mentioning. It's like, am I going to be arguing for this case or against it? I have to be prepared for both. And by doing that, I'm if I'm trying to make a case either way and need to be prepared, either way, then like I said, that ensures a level of objectivity because I can see I can see the evidence or argument to be made from, from either side. I'm trying to balance justice and mercy here, okay? Jesus did it perfectly. With the woman taken in adultery, go and sin no more, there's justice. But neither do I condemn thee, there's mercy. Uh, he, he splits the middle when, when the, the leaders there at the time were trying to get him to fall off one side or the other. They didn't care which. Uh, do you want to sin against justice or sin against mercy? And Jesus says, I'd rather sin against neither. Okay, uh, And that's what he's trying to ensure in these kinds of cases as well. Notice in 16, it's after the evidence is examined in its true light, everyone is looking at these things, trying to understand things in the best, in the truest possible light. Then you draw these, these numbers, you cast the lots. And then, okay, I'm, I'm pushing for mercy. Others, I'm pushing for justice. Well, what, what's the proper balance? These principles, by the way, go so far beyond church membership councils. Anytime you and your spouse uh, are trying to decide on, what are we going to do with the kids? Uh, anytime you and your presidency or your class, anytime in, in, in any leadership, or you just deciding things on your own, or... Judging a situation or another person. Notice the principles the Lord is teaching here. Wait until after the evidence is examined. Don't jump to conclusions when you're, when you're ignorant of the situation. Make sure you examine things in their true light, which is probably going to require that you hear both sides of the story. Uh, I, I got some very wise counsel from someone once. When I was about to make a mistake in judgment, Because I'd only heard one side of the story. And when I heard it, oh, I was on the side of the person telling me the story. And I'm like, oh, how dare that person? And I'm ready to jump on and administer justice to them. And as I was talking with uh, one of my leaders of what should I do in this circumstance, uh, he just very gently said, well, have you checked the other side? Uh, And I'm like, what do you mean, what other side? This is what happened? They said this. And I'm like, well, from their perspective, I'm sure that's what happened. But what about from the other person's perspective? Ah, good call. And before I jump to conclusions, examine all the evidence in its true light. Make sure you're approaching these decisions, uh, these verdicts, with equity. Make sure it's fair, with justice. And throughout it all, make sure there's no insult or injustice. Make sure that everyone knows that they have a friend in court. If Jesus is our advocate with the Father, pleading our case before him, Even if he knows our guilt, he also knows our circumstance and our situation. He knows our weakness. And he's trying to weigh all of that evidence. He's trying to see it in its true light. And he is the true light. He is equity and justice. And make sure there is no insult, even when there has to be accountability and judgment and perhaps even condemnation. In verse 18, In all cases... The accuser and the accused shall have a privilege of speaking for themselves before the council. After the evidences are heard and the counselors who are appointed to speak on the case have finished their remarks. Like I said, from my own experience, it's good to hear both sides of the story firsthand. Let them speak for themselves. let, Let them explain their situation. Then in 19, after the evidences are heard, the counselors, accuser and accused have spoken. The president shall give a decision according to the understanding which he shall have of the case and call upon the 12 counselors to sanction the same by their vote." So in this case, the president is the judge, half the council is the jury, and you have prosecution and, and defense and so on. But it is the president who finally decides. I remember a story that Elder D. Todd Christofferson shared when he was stake president in Nashville, a place close to my heart. Uh, I've been in the building that he did this in. Well, there was a disciplinary council, and he, he just felt overwhelmed when it was done. Well, when when all of this part was done and the final decision had to be made, uh, he said he went back into the state president's office and just slumped down in his chair and just prayed, Heavenly Father, what am I supposed to do? Because this person has done horrific things, but he's also had horrific things done to him. He is both perpetrator and victim. And how do I balance justice and mercy here? You that you get a sense that Elder President Christofferson at the time knew that he was on trial, just like this, this accused person? Uh, that he was trying his very best to seek inspiration, to balance justice and mercy. He wanted equity. He wanted justice. He was avoiding insult. He was avoiding injustice. He just wanted to know what the Lord wanted him to do. Because at the end of the day, he was the one that needed to decide it. In the disciplinary councils I've been a part of on the ward level, as a counselor in the bishopric, I was praying hard and trying to understand as best as I could and trying to weigh justice and mercy in the case of each individual that had come in to repent. Uh, At the the end of it all, it was the bishop. It's always amazing for him to just seek our counsel uh, and to be open, open ears, open mind, open heart to the things that we were perceiving and understanding in these experiences. All like I said, gathering the scattered pieces of the revelatory puzzle, as then he had that responsibility based on the dignity of his office to make these difficult determinations. Again, I testify of the Lord's role in all of this. I've learned that he does delegate, but when it comes to the atonement, he doesn't delegate very far. Those have been some of the clearest impressions that I've received in counsel with others of what needs to take place. How, how big is the band-aid to cover the wound? How deeply do we need to scour out that wound to make sure that, that everything, every bit of infection is out of it? As doctors would say with their Hippocratic oath, to do no harm, uh, to do no injustice, as it says here. But that harm can either be by by going too far, or not going far enough. Now twenty, we're still not done. Should the remaining counselors who have not spoken? So now is the jury, or any one of them, after hearing the evidences and pleadings impartially? Interesting. There's evidence that seems to be uh, objective, unemotional. Pleadings. There you get some more of the the emotion. Uh, as people both for pleading for mercy on the part of the accused or pleading for justice on the part of the accuser. But hearing them impartially, you're still there's emotion there uh, on, the, on those two groups. But you have to be impartial, unemotional yourself. If you discover an error in the decision of the president, well, they can manifest it in the case you'll have a rehearing. There's an understanding that, again, we're doing the very best we can to be impartial and no injustice, seeking the Lord's guidance and direction on all of this. But we are human. And if someone is, is, points out an error, then rehear the case. 21, if after a careful rehearing any additional light is shown upon the case, then the decision shall be altered accordingly. But in case no additional light is given, then stick with what you decided the first time. The first decision shall stand, the majority of the council having power to determine the same. Now, verse 23, I think, does apply kind of capstone, final statement regarding membership councils, but also I think it goes beyond it, back to the idea of just running the church and letting everybody speak. 23, it says, in case of difficulty respecting doctrine or principle, if there is not a sufficiency written to make the case clear to the minds of the council, the president may inquire and obtain the mind of the Lord by revelation. That just might be my favorite verse in this section. What do you do when you just don't know enough? Or, and this is possible too, not enough has been revealed. That's the interesting thing here. If there's difficulty regarding doctrine or principle, because there's just not a sufficiency written. I've studied my scriptures, I still can't find the answer. This is line upon line, Again, it's the elastic clause in the U.S. Constitution. The, the Congress can still make legislation on issues that we can't even uh, foresee. We don't know the future. Uh, they'll need to be able to deal with their present when, it, when they get there. Well, same thing here. Uh, the Lord didn't dump everything out the first moment. And, and if you, are, you feel like you're missing some doctrine or some principle, then seek it from God. You may inquire and obtain the mind of the Lord. By revelation. Now a few more pieces of instruction here to finish this section twenty-four. The high priests, when abroad, have power to call and organize a council after the manner of the foregoing to settle difficulties when the parties of or either of them shall request it. Remember, this is to organize the Kirtland High Council. But what about other places abroad? Well, like it said at the beginning of the section, this is a pattern to follow. So follow it and organize yourselves along these lines whenever it's necessary. 25, the said council of high priests shall have power to appoint one of their own number to preside over such council for the time being. And you're absent from the presidency, and so it's just the 12 of us. Who's going to be in charge? Well, again, there needs to be a, a presiding officer within that council. Then 26, it shall be the duty of said council to transmit immediately a copy of their proceedings with a full statement of the testimony accompanying their decision to the high council of the seat of the first presidency of the church. So there you see that take minutes. I mean, here are council meeting minutes. Take minutes uh, of the decision that was made and how it was reached and then send it as quickly as you can. We, we don't... It, oh, this is, the Lord's kingdom is a house of order, right? And so this is where it is in Kirtland. It can be organized elsewhere temporarily. Make that decision and then send it back so it's still under the big umbrella of the first presidency of the church. Verse 27, should the parties or either of them be dissatisfied with the decision of said council, they may appeal to the high council of the seat of the first presidency of the church and have a rehearing, which case shall there be conducted according to the former pattern written, as though no such decision had been made. So you can appeal to a higher court, from bishop to stake president and and on. Uh, Notice it's the same pattern that's followed, though, but not the same verdict you kind of wipe the, you wipe the slate clean. It's as though no such decision had been made. Remember, it's equity and impartiality and justice that we're seeking here. In 28, this council of high priests abroad is only to be called on the most difficult cases of church matters. No common or ordinary case is to be sufficient to call such council. No wonder so many cases are left in a bishopric or a state presidency. Uh, Without having to involve the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency in things that can be handled on a local level. In 29, the traveling or located high priests abroad have power to say whether it is necessary to call such a council or not. They'll be able to decide. Because there is a distinction, verse 30, between the high council or traveling high priests abroad and the traveling high council composed of the twelve apostles in their decision. Now, this is where we see something different. From 30 to 32, we see this insertion. Remember we saw it at the very beginning of today where uh, Joseph this, this is the best we could do and I'm sure it's imperfect but you can fix it and if there's later developments then you can add that to this as well and that's exactly what's happening here. 30 to 32 is uh, concerning the quorum of the 12 apostles which aren't created, it isn't created until 1835 but since this these meeting minutes had to do with councils uh, and the kinds of things that they're involved in well, what a perfect place to insert, now that we have a quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Ah, this is making sense now. Uh, that there's these uh, councils in, in the stakes of Zion. Here's the High Council in Kirtland. There'll be other high councils in other stakes elsewhere. But a traveling, it, it's abroad. Yeah, oh, okay, here's the Twelve Apostles that have responsibility over the work in all the world. They have the broadest umbrella. And and so they're going to follow a similar pattern to what we saw on on the local level. But these three verses apply to them. There's a distinction between them, verse 30, different levels of authority. 31, from the decision of the former, the stake high council, there can be an appeal. But from the decision of the latter, quorum of the 12, there cannot be. 32, the latter can only be called in question by the general authorities of the church in case of transgression. So yes, even apostles aren't, aren't perfect. And uh, we see that a lot in the early days of the church. Um, they seem to be really close to it in our day. They're amazing. But, but uh, apostasy took place among quorum, members of the Quorum of the Twelve in the early days of the church. There was transgression and so on. But it's not up to just a, a member of the church to call them out. It's other general authorities of the church that, that call them into question. Now back to the original minutes, 33 and 34. Resolved that the president or presidents of the seat of the First Presidency of the Church shall have power to determine whether any such case as may be appealed is justly entitled to a rehearing after examining the appeal and the evidences and statements accompanying it. So First Presidency, you are the ultimate court of appeal. Make sure that everything that's been done in in lower courts and councils follows the pattern that's established here in Section 102, especially about no injustice or, or injury especially about being impartial and not jumping to conclusions and seeking the Lord's revelation so that, so that justice is administered every time. Finally, then, in 34, they did what was asked, these 12 that were appointed and sustained, then cast their lots to, to find what's the order uh, of seniority here, I suppose. The 12 counselors then proceeded to cast lots or ballots to ascertain who should speak first, and the following was the result, namely, Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Coe, Samuel H. Smith, Luke Johnson, John S. Carter, Sylvester Smith, John Johnson, Orson Hyde, Jared Carter, Joseph Smith Sr., John Smith, and Martin Harris. I wonder if Martin's like, man, I'm always last. Uh, last of the three witnesses. Last, of That's okay, Martin. You're, you're doing great. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. And then after prayer, the conference adjourned. And interesting that this revelation then ends with some signatures. Oliver Cowdery and Orson Hyde, clerks. Like I said at the beginning, it's amazing that even meeting minutes can be revelatory, can be scripture, can be canon. Now, with Section 103, we are back to the the topic that we brought up in Section 101. Okay, we took a break to go perfect the saints and organize the church. Well, but we've got to go redeem Zion. Okay, so here's the Lord. He took a little step to keep keep him going, and now it's it's time for you to baby steps to keep coming forward. They're wondering what to do about the saints that have just been. Uh, cast out of Jackson County, that's always on their mind. And so the Lord gives them some instruction. Verse one, verily I say unto you, my friends, behold, I will give unto you a revelation and commandment. Those two should be synonymous in our mind. If he reveals it, it's meant for us to do something about it. That you may know how to act in the discharge of your duties concerning the salvation and redemption of your brethren who have been scattered on the land of Zion. Now notice the Lord makes a, a, a subtle difference here. They keep talking about and asking about the redemption of Zion. That's Joseph's his concern, right, from section 101. I don't know why this is happening, and I don't, know, I don't know what we're supposed to do to fix it. God put his pin in the map, and Zion has to be built there in independence. But now we're not even in the county anymore. What are we supposed to do? Lord, how do we redeem Zion? Well, the answer comes with, well, let's talk about the salvation and redemption of your brethren who happen to have been scattered on the land of Zion. So even the Lord is prioritizing Zion people over Zion place. And to the degree that the leaders are wondering about, but about the place, what about the place? It's like, let's talk about the people first. Because like I said in an earlier revelation, Zion will not be moved even though her children are scattered. The place isn't going anywhere, but the people have gone. And so let's worry about them. If we can take care of the people, the place will end up taking care of itself. That's always been God's priority. People over programs, or in this case, people over place. Verse 2, they were driven. They were smitten by the hands of mine enemies. The Lord calls them, those are my people, which means their enemies are my enemies. On whom I will pour out my wrath without measure in mine own time. In section 104, we'll see blessings poured out without measure. Here, it's wrath poured out without measure but it will happen in mine own time. That's a tricky one. They want it to happen now. The Lord's like, well, some things will happen now. Others, in my own due time, it will occur. By the way, it's interesting that here, the Lord is focused on the Missourians. In prior revelations, he was focusing on the saints. Why is this happening? It's because you have not become a Zion people. Your own covetousness, your own detestable things, That's that's keeping me away and exposing you to the dangers of your enemies without. It's on you. But here it's it's also on them. If you remember in the Last Supper, when Jesus says, One of this night one of you will betray me, and the apostles all start to wonder and look inward first, Lord, is it I? That the the order is key. Could it possibly be me? Might I be the weak link in the chain? And the prior revelations focused on the saints first. Cleanse the inner vessel. You have more control over yourself than the other party. So fix yourself first. It is interesting, however, that in those accounts, we have multiple accounts of the Last Supper. And the one we always talk about is the Lord is it I, because it's more noble, it's more altruistic. But in another one of the versions, uh, the apostles are kind of wondering, not just, Lord, is it I, but Lord, Lord, who is it? And they're kind of looking around and wondering who it might be. I'm so grateful, and I'm sure both, of, both accounts are true. There is a certain level of introspection, but also a certain level of wondering what, who, who else might it be. I, I, that, that to me is key. There are those of us that never look inward and automatically just look outward for scapegoats. But there are those humble, uh, meek few that only blame themselves when they are not deserving of all of that blame. I've learned that through some, some powerful personal experiences among some of the best people I know that blame themselves uh, too harshly when they're not the only person responsible for some of the difficulties that they've faced. There's something about that as far as the Lord here. Yes, I'm going to start by calling the saints to repentance. But it's not all you. And I understand that. My, I, have ch- I have chastened you. You felt some wrath. Well, the Missourians will too. In verse 3, I have suffered them thus far. I've allowed them to do this. That they might fill up the measure of their iniquities. That their cup might be full. You remember, that was part of that 400 years of bondage in, in Egypt, the Israelites, because the, the, Amor, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. The Lord was allowing the Amorites, the, the, the people that were in the land of Canaan before the Israelites returned, to get to a point where, where justice demanded some kind of punishment. Remember, there's not supposed to be injury or injustice. Okay. So uh, I'm I'm giving them more time. Time to repent, best case scenario, or time to fully be deserving of the consequences, worst case scenario. Now verse four, that those who call themselves after my name might be chastened for a little season with a sore and grievous chastisement because they did not hearken altogether unto the precepts and commandments which I gave unto them. So in verse four, we're back to the saints. Two and three, we took a quick break to acknowledge what you're up against. And yes, the Missourians are partially to blame too. Uh, it's there are circumstances beyond your control but the part that you can control that's worth focusing most on so let's get back to you saints and this little season of chastisement and yes it's sore yes it's grievous but it's little in the big picture it mostly came because you wouldn't hearken to my words lack of obedience that's what's it's what's causing these problems You didn't build a temple. You didn't become a temple-worthy people. You didn't become Zion on your way to build Zion. But it's interesting how he says, you did not hearken altogether. I wonder what he meant by that. Is he talking about their completeness or their collectiveness? Because on the one hand, it's like, you didn't altogether hearken. You hearkened a little, but not to all of it. You didn't hearken completely. On the other hand, you didn't all together hearken. You didn't hearken collectively. Some listened and obeyed. Some ignored and disobeyed. You're in this together. If Zion is one heart and one mind, you can't just be the the good exception to the the generally negative rule. You are your brother's keeper. and, And we've got to get there together. In five, But verily I say unto you that I have decreed a decree which my people shall realize inasmuch as they hearken from this very hour unto the counsel which I, the Lord their God, shall give unto them. Behold, they shall, for I have decreed it, begin to prevail against mine enemies from this very hour. You get, you get the sense in both 5 and 6, the, the repeated phrase, from this very hour. This could be a turning point in your life. If you will make the decision to change, the problem in verse 4 can become the solution in 5. You didn't hearken, but now you can. And if you will take advantage of this moment of change and turn to me, then I will turn away the wrath of your enemies. We saw that in a previous revelation too. But it's on you. Repent. Obey. I love the verse in Alma 34 when Amulek is crying repentance among among his people and he says, If ye will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. You understand that? That immediately? There seems to be this sense of... Well, it goes back to the phrase that we saw from from Helaman. That if you repent, you will be restored unto grace for grace. Remember in section 93 when we said that's how we grow up in God. That's how the Lord received his fullness. He progressed from grace to grace. By receiving grace for grace every step along the way. Well, this process of living in God and working with him... We, we get in the way of. We interrupt through our disobedience. He gives us grace and then we don't do anything with it. He gives us commandments and we, we fall short of, of fulfilling them. And then it sticks a, a, a wrench in the works and the gears come grinding to a halt and we're no longer in that process of grace for grace. But what he's saying here, well, what was said in Helaman, you can be restored to grace for grace. Just take the gear the, the wrench out of the gears and and lubricate them through repentance and, and you, it's right up and running again. That's again what Amulek is saying. Immediately the plan of salvation will work for you instead of working against you. Because you're no longer working against it. If you will repent, you saints in Missouri, you saints in Kirtland, you saints anywhere, then from this very hour... The moment you begin hearkening. See, that's the very hour in verse 5. If you'll hearken from this very hour, then in verse 6, you'll begin to prevail from this very hour. You see the parallel there? I love it. The moment you repent is the moment that the plan of salvation begins to work again for you. The moment you obey is the moment you begin to prevail now, verse 7 By hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord their God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdoms of the world are subdued under my feet and the earth is given unto the saints to possess it forever and ever. You see how often the word hearken has been repeated in this section so far? Please listen to me. That was the first word of the Doctrine and Covenants. I'm a God who speaks. Are you a people who listens? If you'll hearken, you'll never cease to prevail. You saw that word in six. You'll prevail. You'll start to prevail. Well, if you start to prevail by hearkening, you'll never cease to prevail as long as you never cease to hearken. Those two will always go hand in hand. And if we let God prevail in our lives, Israel, then God will help us prevail over our enemies, Until the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall rule forever and ever. We will be there with him as he rules. In verse 8, But inasmuch as they keep not my commandments, there's the flip side, and hearken not to observe all my words, the kingdoms of the world shall prevail against them. We talked already about Moses with Aaron and Hur sustaining and lifting his hands. Well, we're down in in the valley with, with Joshua. Are we fighting? Are we obeying orders? That's one of the things that defines an army, is their obedience to order. Well, in seven, if you hearken, you'll prevail. In eight, if you don't hearken, you won't prevail. We're seeing that clearly on the ground in Jackson County. In verse 9, for they were set to be a light unto the world, to be the saviors of men. That's why I sent you there in the first place. But verse 10, inasmuch as they are not the saviors of men, they are as salt that has lost its savor, and is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. That uh, analogy, that metaphor from the uh, Sermon on the Mount has been brought up several times in recent revelations. I wonder if that's what's on Sidney Rigdon's mind when he gives that inflammatory salt sermon that causes more harm than good. It's like, oh, you're good for nothing, trodden underfoot of man. Some people thought, oh, he must be talking to the Missourians there and we we should drive them out. We should trample them underfoot. No, the Lord was talking about you, saints. You're the ones that salt. Much is given. Much is required. And I'm holding you to a higher standard. Yes, I acknowledge what the Missourians are doing against you. But I'm more concerned about what you're doing to yourselves. And so you have to become more savory. To, to, savor, to be a savior, you are table salt, not road salt. So live up to those divine expectations. In 11, verily I say unto you, I have decreed that your brethren, which have been scattered, shall return to the lands of their inheritances and shall build up the waste places of Zion, But realize that my timing is different than yours. Yes, it will still be there. The pin is still in the map. Zion will not be moved. But right now I'm concerned about your brethren, those who have been scattered. The day will come when they return. But notice verse 12. After much tribulation, as I have said unto you in a former commandment, cometh the blessing. Now, That phrase is so key for all that we're studying today. And and for life itself, since life has its fair share of tribulation as well. After much tribulation cometh the blessing. But I'm so grateful that the Lord reminded us here that this isn't the first time he's said that. As I have said unto you in a former commandment. Remember Joseph Smith was describing that when he talked about I still don't know what's going on and why this is happening. And he said, "I, I keep reviewing the revelations God has given me. So Joseph is reading the scripture, trying to make sense of, but you said that's where we were to establish Zion. That was the center place. That's section 57. It's in my book. Yeah. Well, I can picture the Lord saying, keep reading and reread section 58. Now, that's the verse he's alluding to here in section 103. I said unto you in a former commandment, Go back with me to section 58 and you'll see that same phrase. It's verse 4. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. He's quoting himself. But what blows me away is what he said surrounding that promise. Again, this is section 58. It's 57 is when Joseph first uh, uh, arrives in Jackson County himself. He's not going to stay. He's gonna just going to check it out. Like, yeah, this is... Th-. In section 57, it's when the Lord puts the pin in the mat. He says, this will be the center place. And then Joseph receives 58 before he goes back to Kirtland to keep things going there. And there in verse 4, it's this, well, there's going to be... After tribulation come the blessings. Talk about... I mean, what a welcome mat... Uh, you've just arrived in the, in the place that God has promised you as your promised land. And, and the first thing he says to you, is like, instead of the welcome mat saying welcome, it says, after much tribulation come the blessings. And you're like, um, what have I signed up for? What am I in for? In fact, go back a few verses and look at verse 2. And this would have been oh, so... <laughs> I don't think the saints had any idea just how important these verses would end up being. The fact that the Lord, three years later, is pointing back to them. Like, I told you this before. Go back and reread it. And not just verse 4. Verse 1, let me talk to you about the land that I've sent you to. Verse 2. Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments. Mm, Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What's the one thing that kept you from establishing Zion in that time? You didn't keep the commandments. So from the very get-go, your first Sunday at church, so to speak, in Zion. Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments. And then this, whether in life or in death. Wait, what? That's an option? Like, Yes, I've called you to come to live in the land of Zion or perhaps to die in the land of Zion. Either way, it's Zion. Like, um, can I take option A instead of option B? It might not be up to you. Either way, though, he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. So, first thing they hear is about tribulation. Then in verse 3, we talked about this verse at length when we were back in section 58. Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning these things which shall come hereafter and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. You see what the, the Lord is dropping hints left and right that probably went over the head of the, of the saints at this time period. Going, oh yeah, tribulation but blessings, blessings, yes, yes, blessings. Yeah, I know it'll be hard but the, the blessings are here. Well, yes, the blessings will come, but you might want to spend a little more time thinking about the tribulation because it will define your experience in Missouri. So that's why he says in 4, after much tribulation come the blessings. I'll quote that in a few years when you need to be reminded of it. Wherefore, the day cometh that you shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet. Mm. Man, he, you really did tell me everything in advance. The hour is not yet. Three years from now, it's going to look more bleak. Uh, The prospects will be worse than ever. And here we are, almost two centuries later, still wondering and waiting. The hour is not yet. And then five. Remember this, which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. I am amazed by that. What he says in five, it's like, Mm, Have you ever watched a movie, and and by the end it makes sense and like whoa that total twist, but and then you I just want to watch it again, and when you watch it the second time you realize that there are so many foreshadowings of that, and a little hint dropped here and a little piece left there, and it's like oh how could they not see that coming, and it's like well you didn't see it coming the first time you watched the movie either. And so, to me, it's amazing. That the Lord said back there, that first month in in, in uh, Jackson County. Remember what I'm saying here; it'll come in handy. And sure enough, three years later, don't you remember what I said in that former commandment? Go back and reread it. And if you'd had the eyes to see, you would have seen this coming all along. Section back to section 103, verse 13. Behold, this is the blessing which I have promised after your tribulations and the tribulations of your brethren, your redemption and the redemption of your brethren, even their restoration to the land of Zion, to be established, no more to be thrown down. You understand what what you're aiming for and working for and, and fighting for and living for? It's redemption. It's restoration. It's worth whatever sacrifices you have to make to get there. It's worth enduring whatever tribulation. I love what Thomas Paine wrote in the very first number of the American crisis. In common sense, he had whipped up the, the colonists into this enthusiasm for independence. To the point that six months later or seven months later, they declare their independence. But then the rubber hits the road and now we're actually fighting the British and it's not looking very good. Uh, it's, it's the Valley Forge winter. It's It's, this is hard. And this was not as easy a victory as I thought it would be from the get-go. It's so similar to what the saints are going through. It's like, I'm trying to redeem Zion in Missouri. Well, rewind a few generations. I'm trying to redeem a nation uh, of freedom and liberty. (laughs) If God wants this to happen, wouldn't he help us a little bit more? Well, that same voice of the revolution Thomas Paine, wrote this in the opening lines of what became 13 uh, epistles, so to speak. One for, uh, he numbered them, one for each colony, basically. Uh, but in this very first and most famous one, he wrote this. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now... ...deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. Tis dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to set a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. I love those words of Thomas Paine, But they make me wonder about these... Were, were, if he was worried about summer soldiers and sunshine patriots, was Joseph Smith concerned about summer saints and sunshine disciples? Oh, I'll obey when times are good. I'll do what you ask if the blessings are right in, right in front of me. But when you're in the thick of it, is that when you shrink? Is that when you give up, lay down the arms and just go back home and, and let happen whatever happens? No. I, I love what he said about heaven knows the price that it should fix to what it is offering. Freedom shouldn't come cheaply. Or as we see in verse 13, redemption and restoration. Restoration. Those those didn't come cheaply for Jesus. They cannot possibly come cheaply for us. And if we will observe our covenants by sacrifice, we will value them so much more than if they simply were dropped into our lap. It's not just tyranny that is not easily conquered. It's hard to put off the natural man too. But that is a, a, a victory, a conquest worth fighting for. However long and hard the road, we have to become worthy of the promises of God. 14, he says that. Nevertheless, if they pollute their inheritances, they shall be thrown down. For I will not spare them if they pollute their inheritances. This is the land of promise. You have to be promised yourself. You have to live up to the promises that you've made with God. Hearken to his commandments. That's what I love about the Lord holding to the place, even as he works with and within the people. I cannot lower my standard. That would be unjust. But I can extend your deadline. I can give you endless retakes. You just have to master the material. I cannot allow you to pollute the land of promise. But I will, I will give you as many chances as you need to become a promised people yourself. In 15, Behold, I say unto you, the redemption of Zion must needs come by power. And it's not just going to be a physical power, although we're going to see that tried first with Zion's camp. It's spiritual power. And as we'll learn later in section 121, we cannot tap into the powers of heaven if we haven't become heavenly ourselves. Those powers are only handled on principles of righteousness and you're not yet righteous you haven't developed that kind of spiritual power therefore verse 16 i will raise up unto my people a man who shall lead them like as moses led the children of israel now in american history circles if you were to ask who's the american moses they would say it's brigham young he's the one who led the the mormon pioneers out of their bondage in in egypt aka in america that didn't preserve their their religious freedoms Uh, into their new promised land. And then he settled and and, and Brigham Young was amazing as a Moses. But if you were to ask Brigham Young who the American Moses was, he'd be the first to say, oh, it wasn't me. It was Joseph Smith. I learned everything I needed to learn about organizing companies and crossing uh, the land and and, uh, establishing uh, uh, civilization from Joseph Smith. I learned it on Zion's camp. Joseph was the original American Moses. And he became that on Zion's camp. Now, I do wonder, though, if, if, uh, if Joseph was concerned about the analogy. Say, so, okay, I have to be Moses. Okay, I'll do my very best. But does that mean that the members of Zion's camp are going to be the Israel that Moses had to lead? Because, man, that was like murmuring all the time. Uh, and then lots of wandering and not actually getting there. And when they finally arrived, not even being able to to go in and accomplish what he had set out for. That was for a later generation. uh, How similar are these parallels? And I can just picture the Lord smiling silently. Uh, There's going to be a lot more parallels than you can imagine. But Joseph would be that Moses. 17, sure enough, the other side, ye are the children of Israel, murmuring and all, you are of the seed of Abraham, and ye must needs be led out of bondage by power and with a stretched out arm. So yes, that parallel will hold too. But it is interesting to me that in 17, the focus is not yet about being led in, it's about being led out. That's what he says in 17, you're led out of bondage. I'm trying to get Egypt out of you, uh, even as I'm trying to get you out of Egypt. Getting into the promised land, it will get there. Okay, uh, I'm eternal, right? Even if you wander, wander, die for a while, which will be true in both cases also, uh, it's about getting you out of the bondage that, to sin that you find yourself in. And that has to be done by power, spiritual power, my grace infusing you, my, my arm stretched out to you, beckoning you to come unto me. In 18, the parallel continues, as your fathers were led at the first, even so shall the redemption of Zion be. I've, I've done this before. I have some experience in bringing people out of bondage and into a promised land. Trust me, I've had, I've had experience here. Therefore, verse 19, let you not your hearts faint. I got this. For I say not unto you as I said unto your fathers. So there's going to be a difference here. What I said to them, mine angel shall go up before you, but not my presence. Remember we talked about that in section 84, about uh, the, the two priesthoods, and that God is Melchizedek priesthood, uh, angels are ironic priesthood and because uh, with the golden calf episode they weren't worthy of God's presence God removed the Melchizedek option and gave them the ironic option instead they, he took himself out of the mix and sent an angel to lead the way before them instead well that's one amazing difference that God is not going to let to leave us to ironic authority alone he restored the Melchizedek priesthood for a reason and if we will live into those Aaronic ordinances that eliminate sin from us, that's our repentance side, then it is Melchizedek ordinances that will bring us into God's presence, into his house, into his promised land. So that, that to me is the most striking difference. There's so many parallels between the camp of Israel anciently and the camp of Israel in, in Zion's camp. But that's the biggest one you'll be Melchizedek rather than Aaronic. I, I, God, will go with you and not just send an angel. That's the promise in 20. I say unto you, mine angels shall go up before you. You'll still have Aaronic. And also my presence. There's Melchizedek. And in time, be patient. It's going to be a lot further away than you realize. Ye shall possess the goodly land. But remember what Melchizedek's all about, section 84? It's synonymous with godliness. So to me, there's something about you won't have a a land that is... You won't get to a place that is goodly until you become a people that is godly. Godliness has to precede goodliness, and the people have to precede the place. Become Zion. Repent. Verse 21, Verily, verily, I say unto you, My servant Joseph Smith Jr. is the man to whom I likened the servant to whom the Lord of the vineyard spake, in the parable which I have given unto you. So now the Lord's being crystal clear. Back in section 101, when he said, well, let's be direct and, talk to, and chastise you for your failure to build a temple. Then, okay, let me ease off a bit, and I'll just tell you a story. Like, oh, good, story time. Well, the story's still about you. Uh, and uh, You didn't build the tower, and that, no wonder that the vineyard was, was overrun by, by the enemy. But he sends a servant to gather the strength in my house. Uh, and as if they're pondering that, what is exactly does that mean? Well, here it becomes crystal clear. The the servant in the parable is Joseph Smith. And what was the servant told to do? Gather an army and go retake the vineyard. Well, Okay, Joseph, here's your marching orders. 22, therefore, let my servant Joseph Smith Jr. say unto the strength of my house, my young men, even the middle aged, I'll, I'll settle for some, uh, gather yourselves together unto the land of Zion, upon the land which I have bought with money that has been consecrated unto me. That's an element that he brought up very clearly uh, in the parable as well. Go redeem the land because I bought it. It's mine. I purchased it. It's, I gave to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and so now that belongs to me. And, and not only with money, but I purchased it with my own life's blood. You are bought with a price. We are—we belong to God. Zion belongs to Him too. In 23, let all the churches send up wise men with their monies and purchase lands, even as I have commanded them. So, while you're going down to Zion to redeem the land you've already purchased, keep buying more. Uh, <laughs> If this is going to be the center spot of Zion, Zion will increase and expand. We are lengthening cords. We are strengthening stakes. So while you're, to me, there's something ironic there also. It's like, I can't even hold on to what I already purchased. And the Lord has so much faith in, their, in, the, in his own promises. He knows they're immutable. They're guaranteed. Uh, it, all, all it takes on your side is to repent and obey. As soon as it happens the gears start flowing again. Immediately does the plan of salvation work in your behalf. So, yeah, redeem what you've already bought and keep buying more. 24, inasmuch as mine enemies come against you to drive you from my goodly land, which I've consecrated to be the land of Zion, even from your own lands, after these testimonies which ye have brought before me against them, ye shall curse them. And whomsoever ye curse, I will curse, and ye shall avenge me of mine enemies. This goes back to section 98 and just war theory. You've turned three cheeks, so you have three witnesses that you've been standing on higher moral ground. They cannot justify their attacks against you based on your uh, attacks in, in, in return. You've shown that they started it, and you're willing to end it. And uh, w- One witness, two witnesses, three witnesses. Well, now after all of that, it is time to be avenged of your enemies. And the Lord will be a part of it. 26, my presence shall be with you even in avenging me of mine enemies. Unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. We saw that back in 98 also. There are multi-generational consequences of multi-generational sin and lack of repentance. And boy, did that come true in the Civil War. The next couple of generations where Missouri... So often we think of, oh no, it was all in Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania, that's where Gettysburg was, it's all East Coast kind of stuff. Well, if you look at the line between North and South during the Civil War, it snakes through Virginia and then uh, Tennessee and then Missouri. And those three states had the most uh, engagements, the most battles of anywhere in, during the Civil War. In fact, Missouri came in number three of all the, the places in the, in the Union and the Confederacy where battles took place, Missouri was number three. I mean, it was a border state, not only north-south. In fact, there was a star on the Union flag and a star on the Confederate flag, both of which represented Missouri. You talk about being torn apart, brother against brother, right? people, and Not only was it north-south uh, border state, it was east-west border state. As the far western reaches... It's one that is bleeding into bleeding Kansas. It's one that's trying to affect slavery in the, in the territories. So feeling the Lord's vengeance for generations, that's exactly what took place in Missouri. Now 27, you on the saint side, don't be afraid to lay down your life for my sake. For whoso layeth down his life for my sake shall find it again. Remember back to section 58, welcome Matt. I'm so glad you're here. Whether you live or you die, you'll be blessed. Wow. Okay, this is all coming to fruition. Verse 28, Whoso is not willing to lay down his life for my sake is not my disciple. After all, I was willing to lay down my life for your sake. And so for you to follow that example and be willing to do the same for me, I mean, in some ways he's saying that True discipleship really is a life and death matter. As somebody once said to Elder Holland, how come the early apostles, the ancients, gave up their lives uh, for the, for the, the gospel, and why don't you do it now? And Elder Holland's response was, I thought that's what I was doing. I am giving up my life. I'm laying it down day after day after day. And I'm willing to do any of these things. So there really is more than one way to lay down your life. Now, so far, we've seen the focus on those, the, the warriors, the young men in middle age, the strength of his house. It's going to go join Zion's camp and march down to Missouri to redeem it, to avenge the Lord. Uh, but there's another mission, a group of missionaries sent forth. Isn't it, this would be a weird mission call. You're called to be Zion's camp recruiters, okay? Uh, maybe it's the ones that aren't young or middle age, a little bit older. In fact, in verse 29, Sidney Rigdon, who, uh, what, 12 years older than Joseph Smith, I believe, uh, maybe just past the middle age section, uh, or maybe some of his, the things he went through in Ohio have, have affected him, that yeah, he's probably not the best guy to go on, on the journey. But what you can do with your gifts of eloquence, you can go east and let people know what the saints are suffering. Again, we are standing on higher moral ground. And as soon as other people realize what we're up against and what we've suffered in in the land of the free and the home of the brave then i would hope that saints in those scattered branches in the eastern states would come running and hopefully those who are not members of the church would at least that we would win their hearts and minds that they would understand what we're what we're enduring and suffering and would be supportive of our efforts if we can kind of leverage public opinion against the Missourians, then, then we can get the nation on our side. That would be helpful as we are making these appeals uh, and seeking redress from the local judge, from the state governor, from the president of the United States. You get enough people up in arms uh, as far as public opinion is concerned over what these beleaguered Mormons are suffering out on the, on the Western frontier. Come on, President Van Buren. Or in this case, come on, President Jackson, you got to do something. And that's exactly what these these recruiter missionaries do. Verse 29, it is my will that my servant Sidney Rigdon shall lift up his voice in the congregations in the eastern countries in preparing the churches to keep the commandments which I have given unto them concerning the restoration and redemption of Zion. We saw redemption and restoration back in verse 13. We've seen keeping the commandments all throughout this revelation. Well, it's not just the ones in in Missouri that need to do it. And not even just the ones here in Kirtland that need to. We're all in this thing together. And so you scattered saints, wherever you happen to be, live up to God's divine expectations. Keep the commandments. And we will be able to redeem and restore Zion. In 30, it is my will that my servant Parley P. Pratt and my servant Lyman White should not return to the land of their brethren. They had come up from Zion to let Joseph know what's going on until they have obtained companies to go up unto the land of Zion by tens or by twenties or by fifties or by a hundred until they have obtained to the number of 500 of the strength of my house. I mean, everybody's got a role to play. Joseph's going to be the, the leader here, the American Moses. Uh, Sydney, you're going to go out and recruit Parley and Lyman, I need you. To, you're going to be heading back to, to Zion with everybody, but you've got to help organize the troops. And I want 500, the strength of my house. Now, 31, the Lord, oh, the Lord has an amazing mix of optimism and realism himself. Uh, he holds himself to the perfect standard, and ultimately he, he gets us to reach it too, but he knows what he's working with. Okay. So, 31, behold, this is my will, Ask and ye shall receive, but men do not always do my will. That's such a fascinating verse. This is what I want. I want 500 men. Now, ask and you'll receive. If you have faith, then it will happen. The problem is people don't always have faith and people don't always do the work. They don't always obey my will. So, here's my ideal and now let's talk about the real. Verse 32, if you cannot obtain 500, then seek diligently that peradventure you may obtain 300. Oh, now, 33, if you can't obtain 300, seek diligently that peradventure you may obtain 100. But man, 34, if you can't even come up with 100, that's downright embarrassing. Verily I say unto you, a commandment I give unto you, that ye shall not go up unto the land of Zion, until you have obtained 100 of the strength of my house to go up with you unto the land of Zion. I mean, it reminds me of Abraham uh, pleading for the deliverance of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God tells him, I'm going to destroy it because of their wickedness. And he's like, well, what if I can find 50 righteous people? Will you, sp- will you spare them? And the Lord says, fine. You find 50, good enough for me. And Abraham's like, well, that might be too much. Uh, what about 40? Uh, do I hear 30? 20? Uh, you got 10 going once, going twice? It's like he's, he's bartering down Like that might, uh, yeah, I I think I know enough about Sodom and Gomorrah to know that 50 is a pipe dream. And here's the Lord doing it himself. 500 would be awesome. I'll take 300. I'll even take 100, but I'm not going lower than that. Well, when all was said and done, after Sidney Rigdon was spreading the word and other recruiter missionaries went out and gathered the strength of the house it ended up being about 205 men. Not quite, not anywhere near God's hope uh, or even his second tier, but at least double the minimum. Uh, And beyond those 205 men, there were about 25 women and children that joined Zion's camp as well. And though not all of them were, oh, battle-hardened or even battle-ready military warriors, there was one man that, that joined that was like, the last thing I want to do is fight. Um, I, I, it hurts me to even think about picking up arms and, and fighting my enemy. Right? That's a good thing. Remember section 98, pro- proclaim peace, renounce war. Even those warriors were renouncing war along the way, so many of them. Yeah, but the strength of my house, the spiritual warriors, the army of God, they were beginning to assemble. 35. Therefore, as I said unto you, ask and ye shall receive. Pray earnestly that peradventure my servant Joseph Smith Jr. may go with you and preside in the midst of my people and organize my kingdom upon the consecrated land and establish the children of Zion upon the laws and commandments which have been and which shall be given unto you. Now that's an interesting one. It was like, wait, you already said that Joseph Smith is, he's the guy. He is the man in the, the servant in the parable. He said, yeah, one thing though to gather the the troops and send them but to go with them after all it was Joshua that entered and conquered the promised land Moses didn't cross the Jordan I hope that you're worthy of, of not just my presence and the angels accompaniment but Joseph Smith the prophet to go and preside over you those who did go on Zion's camp frequently spoke of the honor And what a a lesson, a growing experience it was to to travel with the prophet for a thousand miles there and a nearly nearly a thousand miles there and nearly a thousand miles back. It it is an amazing thing. And they were privileged to have him with them. And not just to pray for his company. Pray for their collective success. Help us establish the children of Zion back upon the, the, the land. Actually, that's not what he said. It was to organize my kingdom upon the land, but to establish the children of Zion upon the laws of that land. And not Missouri. Celestial kingdom. New Jerusalem. Uh, Again, people versus place. What's the Lord's focus from the beginning of section 103? What do we do about the people? Our focus is to establish them upon the laws of Zion. Once that's established, then organizing the kingdom upon the land of Zion... That'll be a piece of cake. Now 36, all victory and glory is brought to pass unto you through your diligence, your faithfulness, your prayers of faith. That is the power whereby Zion will be redeemed. Not bullets and bayonets, but diligence and faithfulness so, President Hinckley said in his talk right after the, the terrorist attacks of 9 11, the day that Sunday session of conference is the day that the US military started dropping bombs. But what did President Hinckley say? That victory and glory comes from what? From repentance and from righteousness. That's what, that's what we should be focused on. That's where the power will come. Then the rest of this revelation 37, 38, 39, 40. He creates these little mission companionships to go out and start this work. Probably P. Pratt and Joseph Smith, Lyman White and Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith and Frederick G. Williams. So he takes the members of the First Presidency and splits them up and then pairs them with someone else to, to help with this work. It reminds me of a ward conference when the stake presidency would come down and team up with members of the bishopric to then go out and visit people and kind of divide and conquer. And then 40, let my servant Orson Hyde journey with my servant Orson Pratt. The two Orsons will will hopefully get along. Whithersoever my servant Joseph Smith Jr. shall counsel them in obtaining the fulfillment of these commandments which I have given unto you. And leave the residue in my hands. Even so, amen. Again, do, do you sense how serious the Lord is, but also how confident he is in his own promises? Just leave the rest in my hands. There's a certain level of that confidence in prophets and apostles today. I've heard some where it's like, aren't you worried or nervous about, I mean, how are we ever going to build a temple in Jerusalem? Or how are we going to do this? And it's like, it's the Lord's church. I let him worry about it. I've heard some apostles say that. It's the Lord's church. I let him worry about it. And here the Lord is giving them permission to do so. Leave the residue in my hands. Just obey. Follow my counsel and as people do that, they will obtain the fulfillment of these promises. At, from this very hour, if you'll hearken, then from this very hour, you'll begin to prevail. Well, for continuity's sake, I would jump straight ahead to section 105, which comes after Zion's camp has already been organized and marched the 900 miles and are there in Missouri where they receive that revelation. But thankfully, we have to postpone that to get through section 104. Because I said at the beginning of the, of the lesson today, redeeming Zion is a whole lot more than just arriving at the place. It's becoming the people. And so if we, we paused for missionary work in 99 and 100, if we paused to perfect the saints and organize the church better in 102, now we're going to pause in 104 to make sure we are caring for the poor and the needy. That's just as much a part of establishing Zion as anything Zion's camp would do in Missouri. You see, what's going on uh, by this point is the United Firm, remember we've seen that in several sections on the way uh, here, the United Firm, this group of church leaders, many of whom were either in, in high positions of authority, Joseph Smith, for example, or had a lot to contribute, John Johnson, for example, a lot to, co- to consecrate. This United Firm was responsible for the literary and mercantile aspects of the church. So there's a literary firm, that is, that's W.W. W. Phelps and, and Oliver Cowdery down in, in Missouri, publishing uh, The Evening and Morning Star, trying to publish the Book of Commandments. You'll have a printing office that they're trying to build in Kirtland as well. Remember, that's part of the building committee that Hiram Smith is on. Uh, so we're going to have church newspapers in both spots, printing establishments in both, and bishop storehouses in both. You've got Newell K. Whitney up in Kirtland. You've got Edward Partridge down in Missouri. And so there's the mercantile. There's uh, being able to provide for the saints temporally, as well as with the publishing spiritually. Well, things hadn't been going very well. I mean, partly, I mean, the, the literary establishment and the mercantile establishment in, in Zion, neither one of those even exists anymore, because as the saints are driven out of, of Jackson County, uh, they, they demolish the printing establishment, right? There's, there's, there's no bishop storehouse to speak of. And so, what do we do with all of this? And things are, st- are still not perfect in, in Kirtland either. And and what do we do with both of these places that the United Firm is responsible for? And and what do we do with kind of against the odds in moving forward with these responsibilities? Well, the revelation comes in section 104. The thought was to just dissolve the whole thing. Uh, And instead, the Lord says, no, let's reorganize this and get more focused on the purpose behind these programs. Because programs can come and go. The purpose will never change. You have the poor always with you, which means there will always be a need to provide for them. That's actually how he starts the revelation. Verse 1, Verily I say unto you, my friends, I give unto you counsel and commandment. Remember earlier he said, I give you revelation and a commandment. Same thing. Here, counsel, commandment, same thing. If the Lord hints at it, we should take it seriously. Concerning all the properties which belong to the order which I commanded to be organized and established to be a united order, this is the united firm, and an everlasting order for the benefit of my church and for the salvation of men until I come. Previous revelations about the order also spoke of it as being everlasting, which we might look at and go, but it wasn't. Even now they're reorganizing it and even after they were commanded to reorganize it, it ended up not working out even uh, to their hopes at this point and it ended up eventually kind of being folded under the responsibility of the, the High Council in Kirtland uh, since they're trying to settle important difficulties and so on and this was an important difficulty uh, so some would say well then it didn't work it was, it was anything but everlasting well pause, Okay, slow down on that judgment because what was everlasting? the priorities and principles? yes the program, no, that can change. It's the packaging versus the content. And, and companies, even to this day, change packaging all the time, even when the, the product itself has been unchanged. In, in verse one, there's that suggestion of, yes, programs may change, but the priority and purpose has not. Caring for the poor will always be a need. It will be for the benefit of my church. I'm taking care of church members and for the salvation of men. I'm, I'm worried about everyone and I'm trying to provide for the world's needs. Verse 2, there's another thing that doesn't change and that's the promise. With promise immutable and unchangeable that inasmuch as those whom I commanded were faithful they should be blessed with a multiplicity of blessings. So verse 1, Program has changed, but purpose has not. Verse two, program has changed, but promise has not. And that promise is a multiplicity of blessings. We'll see that phrase repeated frequently in this section. Verse three, but inasmuch as they were not faithful, they were nigh unto cursing. You know how close you were from cutting yourself off from God? You were nigh unto cursing. It's not too late. Soon as you turn, then I will turn away the consequences. I'll turn away the curse. You just got to change. Verse 4, therefore, inasmuch as some of my servants have not kept the commandment, but have broken the covenant through covetousness and with feigned words, I have cursed them with a very sore and grievous curse. I mean, if you're trying to provide for the poor, then covetousness has to go. You can't. Covet your own property, like Martin Harris was told way back in section 19. You can't, certainly can't covet property that it doesn't belong to you at all, because it was consecrated by others. Uh, feigned words, you can't fake your way through things. You can't oh, pay lip service to the needs of humanity. You have to meet them. It's like what James said when he was teaching that faith without works is dead. I can't just go to someone hungry and say, oh, be fed without actually giving them food. They, they cannot fill their bellies on feigned words, and if covetousness is at all a part of my heart, then that has to change if I'm ever going to meet the needs of those around me. In verse five, "For I the Lord have decreed in my heart, this is something I feel deeply, that inasmuch as any man belonging to the order shall be found a transgressor, or in other words, shall break the covenant with which ye are bound. He shall be cursed in his life and shall be trodden down by whom I will. For I, the Lord, am not to be mocked in these things. Strong language. That you breaking covenant is mocking God. It's you pulling a fast one on him. Like, (laughs) I totally faked out an omniscient being. I said I would do something, but I I had no intention to. Now that feigned, those feigned words that that broken covenant, that is mocking God. And that will bring cursing. That will be, bring being trodden down because that's salt with no savor. In seven, all this, that the innocent among you may not be condemned with the unjust because that wouldn't be fair. And that the guilty among you may not escape because that wouldn't be fair either. Because I, the Lord, have promised unto you a crown of glory at my right hand. God himself is trying to balance justice and mercy here. So at the beginning of 7, I don't want to lump the innocent in with the guilty. That wouldn't be fair. But I also don't want to lump the guilty in with the innocent. The the piper has to be paid. The guilty must be punished. But I am trying to discern between wheat and tares here. Between sheep and goats. Who will live up to my law? And who's only paying lip service to it? In verse 8, Therefore, inasmuch as you are found transgressors, you cannot escape my wrath in your lives. So you don't even have to wait for Judgment Day because you're being punished by your sins now. Uh, Whether or not you'll ever be punished for your sins later. We'll be punished with both. But you don't even have to wait till final judgment. The condemnation is coming already. You're condemning yourself, kicking God out of your life. Verse 9, Inasmuch as ye are cut off for transgression, ye cannot escape the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption. Those consequences are inescapable, especially without my protecting presence. You will be left open to the buffetings of Satan. In 10, I now give unto you power from this very hour, that if any man among you of the order is found a transgressor and repenteth not of the evil, that ye shall deliver him over unto the buffetings of Satan, and he shall not have power to bring evil upon you. There really is this separation of wheat and chaff here, wheat and tares, and you have the power. From now on, it's it's like his mercy has been, my arms are stretched out still. I've been trying, I've been patient, I've been merciful with you. It's time and time again, and we're reorganizing, we're trying something new, but eventually you do pay the piper. Eventually there is judgment. And you're at a point now from this very hour that if people will not repent of their transgressions, then they must be cut off. It's time to hold people accountable. In the allegory of the olive tree, it's time to cut off the dead branches. It's, it's time to move forward. In verse 11, it is wisdom in me. Therefore, a commandment I give unto you that you shall organize yourselves and appoint every man his stewardship. And here we really see the focal point of this Revelation. As we're reorganizing the United Firm, the, the focus is on your stewardship. You've got to take responsibility for what I've, been, what I've given you. You, are, you must be a faithful and wise steward because I will hold you responsible for it. We're seeing this increase of accountability in verse 10. Well, here's what you're accountable for, your stewardship. Verse 12, that every man may give an account unto me of the stewardship which is appointed unto him. To give an account that, that's where accountability comes in. That's a return and report. What are you doing with what I've given you? 13, for it is expedient that I, the Lord, should make every man accountable as a steward over earthly blessings, which I have made and prepared for my creatures. And I'm holding you accountable for those earthly blessings because that's what I made the earth for. To, to be its own blessing, the source of great blessings. It's meant to provide for you all. If you'll do it in the right way, Verse 14, I, the Lord, stretched out the heavens. I built the earth. It's my very handiwork. All things therein are mine. And it is my purpose to provide for my saints. For all things are mine. Remember in the, in the earlier revelations that talk about the, the law of consecration, the Lord introduces himself as the creator of all things. Oh, so many revelations, he's, he's described what he's given us and the bounties of the earth and the fruits of the field and, and all of these things to, to, to give joy to the eye and gladness to the heart, for taste and for smell. I, I've, I've created worlds without number. And the world that I've created for you, it's, it's meant to provide all that you stand in need of. Yes, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread all the days of your life, you sons and daughters of Adam but I've made the earth so that it would bring forth in its abundance because I want to provide for my saints. But here's the problem. This is why it's not working so well. Uh, We've talked about covetousness. We've talked about feigned words. We've talked about a lack of becoming Zion. So no wonder you can't build it. Because you're not yet one heart and one mind dwelling in righteousness with no poor among you. Why do you think I'm establishing this united, we're all in this together, firm, to provide for my saints? You see, verse 16, it must needs be done in mine own way. I think that's the title that's been given to the church welfare program. Providing in the Lord's own way. We have to do it his way or it's not going to work. And what is that way? He describes it in 16. Behold, this is the way that I, the Lord, have decreed to provide for my saints, that the poor shall be exalted in that the rich are made low. Sound like the role reversal that the Lord is so well known for, about the first being last and the last being first, and, and the turning of the tables, rich to poor and poor to rich. Exalt the poor. Bring down the rich. Become one somewhere in the middle. And honestly, Both sides have something to offer. Uh, As I served among the poor on my mission, I was amazed at what they taught me. I think in some ways, the exchange is that physical blessings will flow from the rich to the poor, and spiritual blessings will flow from the poor to the rich. That there is something about that exchange that we each have something to offer, and I will consecrate my, my spiritual abundance as you learn humility and meekness and self-sacrifice and trust in the lord just as you are providing for me food on my table clothes on my back medicine for my for my sick children uh, education or a school or an orphanage what it has to go in both directions and that is the lord's own way The first place we really saw that was back in section 38, which I still think is the most important consecration section in the Doctrine and Covenants. When he talks about, you have to become one. You have to learn to esteem your brother as yourself. And then he gives that parable. Remember this one? This this is so haunting to me. When he tells this story of a, a father who loves all of his kids, he has 12 of them whole house of Israel, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, but he says to one child, you get the robe and the ring, and another one, oh, you get the rags in, in the corner. And then he says, what kind of a father would, would do that and say that he's just? And then he says, that's even as I am. And you're like, wait a minute, God, you just painted yourself into a corner. You just complained about some lousy father that would say that he loved all of his kids equally, but then treated them differently and gave riches to one and rags to the other. That's exactly what you did. You set up the world with haves and have-nots. You are the unjust father in the parable. And there the Lord would say, how dare you? No, you're right that I set it up that way. But with the, the understanding that you would fix things. Of course I'm a just father. The problem is you're not just siblings. And I'm trying to raise children that will become like me. So yes, I gave some of the, the, of the children riches and other of the children rags. But your siblings, and if you would esteem your brother as yourself and realize that I am just and that you need to become just yourself, no respecter of persons, what if the roles had been reversed? What if you'd gotten the even numbers instead of the odd ones, you high council? And which side of the b- debate would you be on? When he says, I, the Lord, am not to be mocked in these things, I get the sense of that parable. Like, do not force me into into a role that I do not play. Do not assign attributes to me that I do not possess. Don't make me look like the guilty one. Yes, I set it up in disequilibrium with the understanding that you would be the ones to seek equilibrium. That's how nature works. I use this analogy in that lesson in section 38 that wind and water flow is all about seeking equilibrium. Wind is high pressure. There's too much here and not enough there, but the wind just blows because nature seeks equilibrium. That there's water up here and not enough there, it will flow down. Yes, it's gravity, but also it's seeking equilibrium. Water will always try to level itself. And... And there's power in the flow. Wind and water generate power and Zion will be redeemed by power. And the power comes in the flow of inequality, seeking equality. God set it up in one way so that we would have a chance to change things and to make them better. When we don't, we're ruining God's plan and we're We're turning him him into something that he isn't. That is mocking God. So let the wind blow. Let the water flow. Don't damn it to keep it all on one side. Because there'll be some damning that comes as a result of that. In verse 16, when he says, It must be done in my own way. Look at 17. The earth is full. There's enough and to spare. Yea, I prepared all things. That's the good news. Well, here's the bad news. And have given unto the children of men to be agents unto themselves. Yikes. Now you see the weak link in the chain? It's not God. Neither in his personality nor in his providence. His providence, He, has, he there is enough and to spare. And it's his will. That's the providence. On the personality, it's, it's my will to provide for my saints and for all of my children. God's not the weak link in the chain, but we are. Because of our Agency. Now, wherever there is agency, there is accountability. We saw that with the Constitution, right? It's not just freedom, it's futurity. It's not just right, it's responsibility. It's not just agency, it's accountability. And what is Section 104 about? Your stewards. And I hold my stewards accountable. This goes so far beyond just the men that constitute the United Firm, it's all of us. It's all of us that have responsibility for the world and its resources that God has given to us. We are the ones that dam the water. We're the ones that, that jam the turbines on the windmill as the wind is trying to flow and trying to generate necessary power. I remember as a junior in high school, I was in an AP physics class, and after the, the, class, after the AP test was over, we still had like a month of school, but... The hard part was done, so we just kind of hung out. And I remember I would often spend physics playing chess with my physics teacher as he chewed me out over Mormonism's single-handed overpopulation of planet Earth. I still laugh going, how did he get away with that? Today, you know, you, you get busted for saying anything against somebody's religion. But we'd be sitting there, you know, check, checkmate, whatever, pawn here, whatever. And he's just like, yeah, you Mormons, you have, your families are way too big. I said, Well, prepare yourself because I'm only the second Halverson that you'll teach, and you'll probably have all six of us. <laughs> yeah, reminds me of what Sister Oakes once said when somebody said, what? Are you trying to overpopulate the planet? And she just smiled and said, I can't think of anyone better to do it. Well, I'd love to have more true saints who will actually take care of things. But to, to, to say back to my, my physics teacher in high school, the earth is full, there's enough and to spare. It, we're not overpopulating the planet. Others are underproviding for the population that's on the planet. God did not create the earth out of scarcity. He created it out of abundance. Unfortunately, that abundance is concentrated into the hands of so few. Such a tiny fraction of the earth's population. A mission in Puerto Rico opened my eyes to that. A humanitarian aid trip to central Mexico opened my eyes to that. A time in the Middle East. I feel convicted at times by verses like 16 and 17. And I hope that we all do, to the point that we look around and think, how can I unkink the hose and let the wind blow or the river flow until it waters everyone's garden? There is enough and to spare. And there have been people kind enough to to help my family when we're in need. I've been grateful for opportunities to try to help other people. It's what makes us one. And that's what makes us Zion. Verse 18, Therefore, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made, and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. The Lord, that, that's some, some powerful language. And it's a warning to anyone who kinks the hose. Those who take of the abundance, again, the, who live into that weak link. The ones who mock God by making him look like the unjust father, when it was an unjust sibling instead. You didn't import your, impart your portion? You, you dammed the river and kept all the water for yourself? Are you serious? <laughs> no wonder you will be counted with the wicked. The, the wicked, not just the negligent. You're, you're the downright wicked. You're at least among them. That, that actually reminds me of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we as, typically associate Sodom and Gomorrah with the wickedness of sexual immorality. And that was definitely there. It was one of the the reasons for its its condemnation. But when you fast forward and read books like Ezekiel with the passage of centuries and he looks back at that time period and says, what did the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah do wrong? Yes, there was wickedness that we typically associate with the place, but they also neglected the poor. That there was an abundance of bread, but they didn't share it. And that brought down the wrath of God as well. I'm not trying to minimize sexual immorality, but I am trying to maximize our neglect of the poor and the needy. Because God lumps all of that in together with wickedness. And then the other line, so that's the with the wicked. Then the other, lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. Well, that's an allusion to another story. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember that one? Because that's how the, the story ends. Uh, the rich man is the one in hell lifting up his eyes in torment because he'd spent his lifetime looking down at Lazarus, this poor beggar, with the the, the dogs licking his sores. Uh, And as Lazarus had begged of the rich man and had received nothing from him, the roles were reversed. The low are... The poor are exalted, the rich are made low. That's exact if you don't choose to do it, I mean that, that's the Lord will have a humble people. You can either choose to be humble or be compelled to be. Well, the Lord will reverse things and you can either choose to come down or you'll be compelled to. And I'm amazed at those incredibly generous saints who have so much to give and give so much that they choose to lower themselves. They 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 speed up the flow. Uh, They turn up the faucet and give as much as they can. It's incredible the generosity of so many wonderful Latter-day Saints. it's, It's inspiring. But the flip side is if you don't choose to do that, to live on less than you otherwise could get away with, then the day will come where there's a reversal. And in that case, in the parable, the irony of him looking down at Lazarus in life, but at looking up at Lazarus in death, and he was the one doing the begging. God, please send Lazarus down. He still saw Lazarus as a servant. He still saw Lazarus as beneath him. God, Lazarus doesn't have anything else to do. Have, send him down and bring some water to cool my tongue as I'm in torment. Yeah, did you see the irony there? There's even things like, it's funny that in, this, in life, who gets the names? Who, who's well known? It's, it's the rich and famous. And nobody knows the names of the poor. And yet in the parable, we know the name of the beggar, Lazarus. We don't know the name of the rich man. He doesn't get one. How do rich people and important people and famous people die? Oh, it's it's on the news, this huge funeral and a big, you know, uh, tombstone or whatever, with commemoration, whatever it might be. And the poor, nobody hears about it. It's a pauper's grave. And yet, in the parable the way it's descri- the the rich man's death is described he's just like ah oh, he died whereas the the poor man Lazarus's death speaks of angels coming to carry him into Abraham's bosom that parable Jesus does such a beautiful job of painting the role reversal and just that little phrase at the end of verse 18 is meant to remind us of that now all of that is background to the specifics he's about to explain in the next oh, 20 or 30 verses. From verse 19 to 46, the Lord is going to spell out how we're going to reorganize the, the united firm. See in 19, Now verily I say unto you concerning the properties of the order. So all of this previous was background at laying the doctrinal foundation of why this is so important. You have to learn to provide for the, the world in my own way. So starting with that, you United Firm members in Kirtland, uh, this is what we're going to do. And for time's sake, I'm just going to summarize these verses. From 20 to 23, it's instruction for Sidney Rigdon. 24 to 26, Martin Harris gets told what to do. 27 to 33 is for Frederick G. Williams and Oliver Cowdery. And then 34 to 38 is John Johnson, he who had that big farm outside Kirtland. 39 to 42 then is for Newell K. Whitney, the bishop in, in Kirtland. 43 to 46, then you get Joseph Smith and what he's supposed to be doing through all of this. And each time, it's like, okay, this is your new stewardship. This is how it's going to run. Sidney, I want you to do this. Or Newell, this is how you're going to do things. Joseph and Oliver and so on. What's interesting is if you read them all, and I hope you'll take the time to do it yourself, there's some little hints or of principles in, in each of these uh, directives to the members of the United Firm. For example, for Sidney Rigdon in verse 20, It speaks of, this this stewardship will be for his support while he is laboring in my vineyard. There's something to be said for those who give full-time service to the Lord. They'll still need to be supported. There are living allowances for members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, for general authorities, that they didn't ask for it, but they were called to walk away from their labors, from whatever was earning them a living. Well, I still have to live. And so, with the example of Sidney Rigdon, it's like you're going to be out working in the vineyard. You'll need some source of income to be able to provide for yourself. So, that's part of your stewardship. In verse 21, it speaks of it's going to come through counsel and united consent. That's important for all of these, that it's not just you deciding for yourself, but we're counseling together, scattered revelation. In verse 22, he speaks of stewardship and blessing almost as if they were the same thing. And in a way they are. That stewardships and blessings are a packaged deal. And it's a deal, in fact, that will bless generations. In the section, in the verses that, that were given to Martin Harris, he's promised a multiplication of blessings also, but he's told to devote his monies for the proclaiming of my words. And I always smile, because almost every time Martin Harris is mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants, it has to do with his money. We saw it back in section 19. Quit coveting your own property. But it's mine. How can I covet? Oh, it's not mine. Dang it. Okay, you're right. It's yours. I'll stop thinking of it as mine, and I will be more generous. And bless his heart, he was throughout his life in the church. Amazing. So here, keep doing that, Martin. Devote your monies. For Frederick G. Williams and Oliver Cowdery, it's interesting to look at the pronouns in their passage, because it's always plural. And the them and the there and the the they... It's interesting that in their case it was a shared stewardship, and I think there's something beautiful about that. If it comes to mission companions, if it comes to a husband and wife in a marriage, do you approach your stewardship together, with all of those shared plural pronouns? Uh, that it's—I mean, there can be a division of labor as far as who takes primary responsibility for finances and so on, but there does need to—you need to get on the same page. And to recognize the shared stewardship that is yours. And to have shared accountability for how it's used. In John Johnson's section, there's a phrase in 34 about make sure you reserve some of this stewardship for the Lord's house. Oh, Whatever you've been given, your time and and your talents, carve some space out for worship in the temple. Make sure that's a part of your stewardship. And he's also told to listen to the spirit along with the counsel of others. So there's the vertical revelation coming direct from God and the horizontal inspiration that can come as you counsel one with another. In Newell K. Whitney's verses, in verse 39, it's called the mercantile establishment. Remember back in section 63, that that hilarious correction the Lord gave us where he said, let my servant Newell K. Whitney retain his store. Uh, Or in other words, the store. Yet for a little season. And how he, we switch, he, the Lord switched out the possessive pronoun for just the generic, definite article. Uh, his store? Nah, no, it's just the store. And he, by now it's just the mercantile establishment. Bishop Whitney has been weaned off his possessive pronouns and the possessiveness that they imply a long time ago. With uh, Joseph Smith, Jr., there's also a sense of Joseph Smith, Sr. being included here. Uh, and so in Joseph's stewardship, there is provision made for his father and his father's family. And to me, there's something to be beautiful to be said about that, too. We usually think of family being our, our branches, what grows out of us. Well, equally important are your roots, what you grow out of. And so don't just think about providing for your children Will there come a day where you need to provide for your parents? There's some role reversal there too. They spent so much of their life providing for you. Can you reverse and return that blessing? Two other things to, note, to look for in this, in this page uh, of stewardships. One is the phrase, the beginning of the stewardship. That shows up in 32 and again in 37 and again in 44. This is just the beginning. Your stewardships are meant to grow with time. That's the capitalism side of things. That you can increase and progress and expand. This is just the start. But don't forget the communalistic side of the law of consecration. That it's not personal ambition. It's ambition for Christ. It's not just how more, more, you, uh, more things would I spend. Rather, it's more used would I be. Rather than how much can I amass, it's how much can I contribute? And the philanthropy that can come as part of this beginning of your stewardship, that's what consecration is for. There's another phrase that keeps coming up often as well, and it's the idea of multiplication. In the Lord's arithmetic, when it comes to providing, oh, it's all about multiplication. It's loaves and fishes, speaking of multiplication. Uh, The the phrase, multiply your blessings, or my favorite, a multiplicity of blessings, that shows up 13 times in this revelation. This is what Elder Maxwell called the Malachi measure, of opening in the windows of heaven and pouring out a blessing so great that you don't have room to receive it. There's a beautiful verse in Luke chapter 6 where he speaks of giving and it shall be given unto you. So cast your bread upon the waters. It'll return after many days. That's what the Old Testament says. But in Luke's version, Jesus said, Give and it shall be given unto you. And then he describes what you'll get. Good measure. Pressed down. Shaken together. Running over. Shall men give into your bosom. I mean, Every phrase in that verse speaks volumes. It's good measure. I mean, think about someone who's trying to cheat you. And so it's like, well, it's, it's almost full. Here you go yeah, it's like the bag of chips that only has the the clear window and the bottom, so it looks like it's full. and then the top of the bag is all full of air. It's like,, it's, uh, I know we sell by weight so I shouldn't complain. But man, this bag makes me feel like I'm getting ripped off. I want good measure. Yeah, it's like when I go to the the ice cream to get ice cream and it's soft serve. I'm like, no, just keep on keep on filling it. The- I'll see how high you can make it. or it's like, I know it's a single scoop, but can you make it a little bigger? I want good measure. Or when it says it will be pressed down and shaken together. And instead of it just kind of, oh, I pour it in and it's kind of a lot of air that's still in there. No, no, no. Shove it down. Pack it in. Shake it together so that it all settles and you still have more room on the top. I remember going to uh, a Mongolian barbecue place once where it was like one bowl for the price. And whatever you can fit in the bowl will cook and serve you. And man, we were pressing down and shaking together and just trying to fit as much as we could in this bowl to get as much as we could from it. Even, even then, it was running over. And that's the promise God makes. That no matter how hard you pack it and how much you shake it, it's still overflowing. It Will men give into your bosom? Notice it's not just putting it into your hands. Have you ever been so overloaded with something that it doesn't fit in your hands? So they just, they keep stacking it up higher and higher and higher as it's, you're just trying to wrap your arms around the whole thing. It's now in your bosom instead of just holding it in your hands. That's the Malachi measure. That is what the Lord is trying to offer. There is the multiply, a multiplicity of blessings. More than we can handle. Remember what we talked about earlier in the law of consecration. God chooses to participate as well. And if he's made the earth and worlds without number, with enough and to spare, even an abundance, how could we possibly stand to lose by giving? After dividing up all of these stewardships in those verses, he then does one other organizational matter from verse 47 to verse 53. And in those verses, he separates the United firm in Kirtland, from the United Firm in Independence. Because the one in Independence basically doesn't exist anymore. The saints don't exist in Independence. They've been driven out. And and so no mercantile, no literary. And and that's going to be a problem if it's all just one group, because then all of the things, the loss in there, is going to gobble up all of the, the, the growth or possibilities in the other. And so as far as logistics are concerned, 47 to 53, separate the two. Now, the one can loan to the other and so on. It's all under the same big umbrella, but we're going to have separate ent- uh, entities. And verse 51 specifically says that it is for your salvation and also for their salvation. So this is meant to help preserve and protect everybody. Even within the church, there are a lot of sub-organizations and different branches of the church that do different things and there's there's the the normal kind of ecclesiastical side of things but then there's also kind of the business aspects of the church so many of which are are meant for church welfare kinds of things so it is interesting that we're following this in our own way in our day and then in verse 54 he goes back to some broad principles we started this revelation with some really important principles as far as providing for the poor just as god has provided for us Then we got into the specifics of what to do, you members of the United Firm, with the stewardships that you currently have, and we're going to make some readjustments there. We got into the specifics of, okay, we're going to separate the two and have two different distinct entities of the United Firm. Well, let's get back to some broad principles. And in verse 54, again, a commandment I give unto you concerning your stewardship, which I have appointed unto you. Here's what it boils down to. 55, behold, all these properties are mine There's the only possessive pronoun you're allowed to to consider mine, the Lord's or else your faith is vain and ye are found hypocrites. And the covenants which ye have made unto me are broken. Wait a minute. That's some strong stuff all over a a possessive pronoun. Yeah, because if your faith is in me, then you realize that all comes from me. If you're not a if you're not a hypocrite. Uh, as, especially you are responsible to lead out in this in, in the temporal affairs of the church if you've made a covenant with me and with each other to be one don't break it and all of that can be broken over the simple idea of you thinking that it belongs to you when in reality it belongs to me all of these verses revolve around the difference between stewardship and ownership that's the point the Lord is making here 56 if the properties are mine then ye are stewards. Otherwise ye are no stewards. You'd be owners in that case. But 57, Verily I say unto you, I have appointed unto you to be stewards over mine house, even stewards indeed. You see how many times the word steward came up in those few verses? As he separates stewardship from ownership. If it's ownership, you think it belongs to you. And there, of course, I don't have to share it because I I did this myself. Uh, But if it's stewardship... I talked about this back in section 38, that once you realize that it doesn't belong to you, it's so much easier to be generous. Back then, in that lesson, I, I, shared, uh, I confessed my sin as a college kid, where I said, I learned that then, that I'm so much more generous with my roommate's stuff. If, they, if there was milk and cereal in the fridge, and a friend came over and said, oh, can I have some? I'd be like, sure, it's not mine. And it was so easy to give it away. By the way, one of my best friends, who was a roommate of mine in, in college, texted me after he heard that lesson, and it simply said, you gave away my food in college. <laughs> and then we laughed. Uh, his birthday was a little while later, and I dropped off uh, a carton of, of milk and a box of cereal just to try to pay him back. And I probably owe him a lot more because of interest 20 years later. Uh, but, but this idea of stewardship versus ownership. C.S. Lewis taught this. They said it's, it makes such a difference when you realize you're no longer the owner of your time, you're just a steward of God's time. That's, that's been a game changer for me as I've been so busy uh, for the last few years and just think, what's well, God's time. What do you want me to do with it? Who can I help? Who can I lift? Who can I serve? Uh, and, and once you make that mental shift, then it's like, God, you have 24 hours today. What do you want to do with it? And when he even carves out a little for you to use for yourself, man, it feels like a blessing. What a generous gift because it all, it's all his. Make that mental shift. It's all about stewardship. In fact, the word steward or stewardship appears 25 times in this revelation. The word ownership never appears. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word when he did it in verse 56. It's, if they're mine, then you're stewards. Otherwise, you're not stewards. But I'm not even going to use that other, that other word. Uh, there are two instances where the word own comes in. But both of those are condemned. You don't own it. God does. They are mine. You're just stewards. So 58, For this purpose I have commanded you to organize yourselves, even to print my words, the fullness of my scriptures, the revelations which I have given unto you, and which I shall hereafter from time to time give unto you. So there's the literary firm half of the United firm. Right? The other half is for the mercantile things, the, the, the stores, the bishop's storehouses. But that's part of it too. Print my words fullness of the scriptures people need the revelations past which i have given to you people need to receive the the revelations future which will come to you from time to time what's it all for 59 for the purpose of building up my church and kingdom on the earth to prepare my people for the time when i shall dwell with them which is nigh at hand oh now we're back to the thought of zion You're going to dwell with us. You're coming back, the second coming. We've got to build a new Jerusalem. We've got to establish Zion. I know. And that's what I talked about in 103, and that's what I'll get back to in 105. But this is just as important a part of building Zion as those other things. It's redeeming the poor, not just redeeming the place. We have to be better at this. We have to be more prepared. Verse 16 ye shall prepare for yourselves a place for a treasury and consecrated unto my name. So now we have a new element of this united firm. We've had the literary aspects, print the scripture. We've had the mercantile aspects, but have bishop storehouses. Well, now there's a sense, which is ironic. It's like the church is so poor. It's like, yeah, we need a treasury, don't we? It's like, for what? Uh, it's like, my kids sometimes are like, do you have a wallet? They're like, I don't need a wallet. I don't have anything to put in it. Uh, it's uh, where do we, it, there's faith here. You're going to need a a treasury. So set one up. And then in 61, appoint one among you to keep the treasury. And he shall be ordained unto this blessing. So you need a treasury and a treasurer. And here's what you do with it. Verse 62. There shall be a seal upon the treasury. And all the sacred things shall be delivered into the treasury. And no man among you shall call it his own. That's one of those times where ownership is condemned. Not even any part of it. For it shall belong to you all. All. With one accord. That's why it's a united firm. okay? A one church. That's what Zion's all about. And what do I do with this one treasury then that doesn't belong to any of us but does belong to all of us? 63, I give it unto you from this very hour and now see to it that ye go to and make use of the stewardship which I have appointed unto you. Exclusive of the sacred things. Or the purpose of printing these sacred things as I have said. Now, he's, he's starting to see a separation here. It's kind of funny. It's like, you need a treasury. And you need a treasurer. For what? What are we going to have? Well, it's going to start coming in. You just start. Now see to it, he said in 63. Uh, now, we're going to do this exclusive of the sacred things for the purpose of printing. So this is, this is interesting. We're, we see this actually in our day. Like I said before about the different sub-organizations within the church. Well, even financially, there's a, a distinction. And in section 104, we'll see a distinction because it's not just one treasury the Lord calls for, it's two. One of the treasuries, this first one he mentions, is going to be a treasury for the sacred things. You see, they're, they're printing the scriptures. And in those days, it wasn't just give them away, it was sell them because we have to pay for, for the, the production. And the, the printers, W.W. W. Phelps or Oliver Cowdery, need that's their stewardship, they've got to be able to survive as well. And so one of the treasuries is gonna cover the, the strictly spiritual things, like the sale of books of scripture. And whatever profit comes back, hold that, keep it in, in, in the treasury, because it's sacred, sacred funds from sacred things. Well, there's gonna be other, another treasury, a second one, because there's land in the church, there's cattle in the church, and there's, if there's profit from that, it's all gonna be consecrated. It's just a matter of which treasury does it go into. And from the strictly spiritual things, put that in the in the spiritual treasury, and things from more of the kind of the business, the mercantile institutions, put that into a separate treasury. And it's amazing that, I mean, it's interesting that there was so much pushback from certain elements. where like, how dare the church build the mall uh, in downtown Salt Lake City? And they spent all this money and. On the one hand, it was all to beautify downtown Salt Lake City to protect the environment of the temple. And to see what's happening in so many downtowns around the world where it's just kind of tanking, uh, and that's not happening in Salt Lake City because the church is protecting the temple, the center place of Zion in, in, the, in the West anyway. Uh, but also the church was very clear that that the money used to build that mall had nothing to do with tithing; that this came from some of the other entities in the church, uh, and and that is, at, at the time, I was like, "What's the big deal?" I, I I can see why some would be concerned, but I was grateful that the church was so careful to to distinguish. And and as I've been studying section 104, I'm like, "Oh, that the Lord set that up a long time ago." Uh, and, the, and the use of tithing funds, they're sacred funds, only used for s- sacred things. And anything that, I mean it's all sacred to the Lord, right? Everything is spiritual, even the temporal things. But there is a distinction for the Lord and for us and those other elements will be drawn upon with funds from other sources. Does that make sense? So, back to the treasuries. There's this exclusive of the sacred things in 63. Then 64, the avails, that means the prophets, of the sacred things, when you sell scripture, shall be had in the treasury and a seal shall be upon it. It shall not be used or taken out of the treasury by anyone, neither shall the seal be loosed which shall be placed upon it only by the voice of the order or by commandment. So if God commands it, obviously, but also the voice of the order. We're all united in this. Go, go Take it back to whatever form of, of uh of shared stewardship you have with a husband and wife, for example, and deciding together by the voice of the order, yes, this is how we're going to spend this money. Uh, So it's not, it doesn't, I mean, if finances are one of the big sources of contention that can lead to divorce, there's some principles here that would help solve the problem on the family level, not just protecting the church on the, the level of the kingdom of God. Now 65, thus shall ye preserve the avails of the sacred things in the treasury for sacred and holy purposes. That's the more sacred of the two. And 66, sure enough, thus shall be called the sacred treasury of the Lord. And a seal shall be kept upon it that it may be holy and consecrated unto the Lord. I think it was President Hinckley that said he always kept a widow's mite in his desk. To remember that as he and others were making decisions regarding the finances of the church, that he recognized all that verse 66 said, the sacredness of those contributions, their holiness, their, the, the fact that they were consecrated unto the Lord, con, with, sacrated, sacred, that it's made holy as we, as we give it to the collective kingdom of God. In verse 67, again, there shall be another treasury prepared. There's the second one. And a treasurer appointed to keep that treasury. A seal shall be placed upon it as well. In the 68, here's what that one's for. All monies that you receive in your stewardships by improving upon the properties which I have appointed unto you, houses, lands, cattle, in all things, save it be the holy and sacred writings. Okay, This is more of the temporal rather than the spiritual which I have reserved unto myself for holy and sacred purposes, shall be cast into the, that second treasury as fast as you receive monies, by hundreds, by fifties, by twenties, by tens, by fives, anything you get. Just put it in. It reminds me in some ways of Nephi's plates where he said, I yeah, I was, I was told to make two sets. Didn't totally make sense. They were both. In fact, he called them both the plates of Nephi. It's kind of funny when he's like, yeah, so these big ones I call the plates of Nephi. These small ones I call the plates of Nephi. Oh man, it, and I already engraved it in it's really hard to erase on gold plates. Well, oh, whatever. There's the two sets of plates of Nephi, but there's a larger and a smaller. There's a temporal and a spiritual, and in this case, the two treasuries were were functioned in a similar way. Now, when he starts talking about money being cast into this second treasury by hundreds or fifties or twenties or tens or fives, uh, I love the fact that whether it's a large contribution, hundred dollars in those days was massive, or a smaller one, five dollars, and I'm sure they would have taken less. But 69 starts to explain what you do with it. And it's really important. 69, or in other words, if any man among you obtain $5, let him cast them into the treasury. Same with 10 or 20 or 50 or 100, let him do likewise. And then 70 is the key defining it all. Let not any among you say that it is his own. Again, ownership is condemned in section 104. For it shall not be called his, nor any part of it, Strike ownership out of your spiritual vocabulary. Replace it with stewardship every time you think about it. 71, there shall not any part of it be used or taken out of the treasury only by the voice and common consent of the order. So again, we're in this together. We're deciding together, collectively, what are we going to do with this? 72, this shall be the voice and common consent of the order that any man among you say to the treasurer, I have need of this to help me in my stewardship. If it's $5 or 10 or 20 or 50 or 100, the treasurer shall give unto him the sum which he requires to help him in his stewardship. So if verse 69 was, hey, 5, 10, 50, 20, 50, 100, give it. Well, then 73 was 5, 10, 20, 50, 100, take it. That's really interesting. It, we, again, we think so often of the, the quote unquote negative side of stewardship or consecration. is like, I have to give. But the, the receive is just as important and just as generous. If you need it for your stewardship, that's the key at the end of 73. Whatever sum you require to help you in your stewardship. Since stewardship, I mean, this goes back to section 82, about the whole where much is given, much is required. Well, where much was required, much will be given. Uh, there's an abundance mentality in section 82. And the whole point of it was so that you would have more to give back to the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church. Fascinating phrases back in section 82. Well, here it's like, you know what? My farm is doing so well. It's not making me rich. It's making the church rich, uh, richer to the point that we can contribute to more of the poor and we can bring them in. Uh, my, my blacksmith shop is really productive or my carpenter, your carpentry is going really well uh, Pete, the, the scriptures are selling like hotcakes because these missionaries are doing so well and nobody's getting rich off of this but the kingdom of God is growing to the point that we can purchase more land in Zion so that people can settle as the poor of the nations come flocking like doves to the windows will we have enough to provide for them in the Lord's own way it's beautiful how this is described. And so if your farm's doing that well, and I'm figuring this out, and with some better equipment or with some a- additional acreage, I know we could, we could do even more. Again, there's the ambition side of the capitalism half. But with a motivation for the communalistic side, that beautiful altruistic half. And I, and I can. this is more used would I be. This is I need to receive more so that I can give even more than I've been giving. This is the parable of the talents. I had five, I now have ten. Oh, imagine if, will you let me keep the ten and reinvest those to end up with twenty? It's all yours, It's none none of it is mine. I'm just a steward here. But imagine if we took that, that approach to things. Now that all works perfectly unless we get in our own way, or in the Lord's way. Remember that, we saw that earlier? The good news is God has given us enough and to spare it. The bad news is we're agents unto ourselves. Darn it. Well, maybe agents should shift into stewards as well. Actually, agents already is stewards. If I'm an agent, it's like power of attorney. It's like when Sidney Gilbert was called to be the bishop's agent for Bishop Partridge down in Zion. It's, you're still functioning under the, the direction and authority of the bishop. Well, if we are the Lord's agents, then we can be trusted. But 74 says, well, what if we lose that trust? It only works until we are found a transgressor. And it is manifest before the council of the order plainly, remember, don't, ju- don't jump to conclusions, that he is an unfaithful and an unwise steward. As, long as If that happens, then that one talent that was buried and nothing came of it, then yes, that one's taken away to be given to somebody else. So, but as long as you're faithful... As long as you're faithful and wise, this is the worthy and competent that we talked about earlier. As long as that's the case, then yeah, go talk to the treasurer and say, I need some additional funds for my stewardship. And they're like, great, we trust you with it. It, There's a seal on this, but it's part of you living into the seal that you've made with God, the covenant that you've created with Him. Verse 75 So long as He is in full fellowship and is faithful and wise in His stewardship, then this shall be his token unto the treasurer that the treasurer shall not withhold. It's like, of course, look at all the great things you're doing with what you already have. Of course, I want to give you more. 76, but in case of transgression, the treasurer shall be subject unto the counsel and voice of the order. And in case the treasurer is found an unfaithful and an unwise steward, ooh, since they're not you know, infallible either, what do you do if the treasurer is, has kind of fallen? Well, he shall be subject to the counsel and voice of the order and shall be removed out of his place, and another shall be appointed in his stead. So that's what we do in those kinds of cases. Now the next few verses, from 78 to about 83, he then speaks of debt, because the church was in debt. Uh, it was, wasn't until Lorenzo Snow and his incessant emphasis, by inspiration, on the law of tithing, that ultimately the church began getting out of debt. But in this time period, just trying to establish Zion and all these saints gathering in. And there's a lot more giving of stewardships than there was of consecrating of properties. And we're trying to build the temple and we're trying to purchase land. And oh, saints are providing and, and generous and donating and so on. But there's also, and we've been driven off our property in Missouri. What are we going to do? How do we deal with debt? And the passage here at the end of 104 I mean, when I lived in Tennessee, uh, Dave Ramsey, uh, uh, his headquarters is in Nashville. And so everybody listened to Dave Ramsey, and he's kind of the, the guru. And he's a really good Christian, too. And so he'd always joke on his radio show that it's like, oh, I'm just teaching, I'm teaching what your grandma would tell you, but, but I keep my teeth in. I think how he always jokes about it. But it's like, here's, and he quotes scripture. And, here's, and that, that goes well in the South, in the Bible Belt. But here's what the Bible would say about, about money. Uh, I know he kind of tours the country and does uh, his financial peace kind of stuff. And I, I've thought, often thought to myself, man, when he comes to Utah, somebody needs to give him the heads up that the Doctrine and Covenants has tons of great advice on money. Uh, if they're, they're the, for the LDS, Dave Ramsey's out there. Uh, there's such powerful uh, counsel here in section 104. Listen to how he puts it. 78, again, verily I say unto you concerning your debts. First and foremost, first piece of advice. Behold, it is my will that you shall pay all your debts. <laughs> that, that's ground rules. Debt is not a good thing. Sometimes it is a necessary evil, uh, as with buying a home, for example, or paying for an education. Typically, they, I've, I've heard that it's best when it's an investment in something that will increase in value, like home and education, rather than decrease in value, like practically every other thing that you buy. Uh, So, But regardless of it, for good reason or bad reason, you owe something to someone. They, in good faith, loaned you money. Then you, in good faith, should repay it. We should avoid debt at all costs, but when we are in it, we need to pay it back. Now, once that's behind us, now how else do we deal with the debt we already have? 79, it is my will that you shall humble yourselves before me, and obtain this blessing of getting out of debt by your diligence and humility and the prayer of faith. That one verse to me is the best verse on debt I've ever seen anywhere in Scripture. Because it tells us how to get out of it. First it told us that we should, but then he tells us how. And it's three elements. Diligence, humility, and the prayer of faith. Now think about that in financial terms. If you, the problem with debt is I'm spending more than I'm making. So how do I reverse that? Well, I, I make more than I spend. And I can do that in one of two ways, or best case scenario, two of two ways. I either increase my income so that I can afford what I'm, what I'm spending. That's the diligence side. Increase your income. Or I can lower my expenses. Then I'm not paying, I'm not buying as much with the money that I have. I'm not in the hole. Well, that's humility. So often... I'm just, I'm not making enough. Well, am I working as hard as I could? Or uh, can I get a better education to be able to get a better job? What, can I be more diligent? Dave Ramsey always talks about getting some kind of a little side hustle, I think he calls it. Uh, is there a little part-time job I can do just to make enough to keep throwing at my debt to get rid of it and snowball a little bit faster? There's my diligence. But also, so often, why are we in debt I, I can't remember who said it, but it was like we end up paying, spending money we don't have, to buy things we don't want, to impress people we don't like. There's some truth to that statement, and 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 what's driving me to buy something I don't want to impress people I don't like? It's pride. It's I feel bad for the Joneses because everybody wants to keep up with them. Uh, and I wonder, are they just trying to stay ahead of everybody and so it's this dog-eat-dog dog cycle that nobody wins and actually nobody has anything? Uh, you, even the what, people that look like they're poor, that rich on the outside might be very poor on the inside because they're just trying to keep up appearances. And that is driven by pride. It would be so much easier first to live within our means. And second, to live beneath our means enough that we have extra to share with others who are in even worse circumstances if we were humble. If we had the humility to recognize that, that we don't own a thing, we're just stewards. And I don't even need all that you've given me in this stewardship, so I can afford to be more generous with your possessions than I have been and through it all, the prayer of faith. Because the diligence and humility side, which they probably wouldn't call it by those words, but the increase your income and decrease your expenses, any secular uh, economist can tell you that. But the beauty of a scriptural economist is that God wants to be a part of this and that you can invite him into it. Uh, as you pay tithing for example and the Lord begins to open those windows of heaven. As you pray for guidance and the Spirit helps you know ways to increase your income through greater diligence or blesses you so that you don't have so many expenses with that increased humility. Uh, Even things like there have been times I've pled with the Lord to please help us make ends meet and I didn't win the lottery but it's amazing the miracles that have come into our lives over the years where there's just fewer expenses. We didn't have as many hospital bills and that allowed us to, to pay off the things that we've gotten uh, in the hole because of pre- previous hospital bills or whatever the case might've been. Uh, it's, and, and sometimes it's just, wow, they, we overpaid a bill somewhere? I, I, I just paid what they asked but then something happened and I got a, a rebate or a refund and that covered what I needed to, to do to make ends meet that month, uh, it's, it's amazing to see that with the prayer of faith, uh, just what comes through. So do your part with diligence and humility, but let the Lord join you in this journey towards uh, better financial circumstances. He wants to be a part of that. He, he is a Lord of abundance and of generosity. In verse 80, he reiterates it and adds one more wrinkle. Inasmuch as you are diligent, increase your income, and humble, decrease your, uh, uh, out your expenses, and exercise the prayer of faith, involve the Lord, behold, I will soften the hearts of those to whom you are in debt, until I shall send means unto you for your deliverance. That's a beautiful promise. You see, the thing about debt is there is somebody or something on the other side—your creditors—and we usually see them as enemies, and often they become that. Uh, It wasn't just altruism that that, uh, motivated them to to give you to loan you something in the first place. It's a business for them as well. But but often there is a person there. I mean, they're not always as nice as George Bailey with the old Savings and Loan, right? Uh, But. But there is usually a human being on the other side of customer service, right? Or a manager or someone you can talk to to explain your situation. And what's amazing to me, I see this often in terms of, well, I've seen bishops do this, where if someone is coming to the bishop desperate, I need help, I can't pay my bills, and I've got this, these medical expenses that have piled up or whatever, and can I... I I hate to even ask, but can I, with fast offerings, could could you please help me? There's humility right there. There's a prayer of faith right there. And so often there's such diligence on their side also. I'm doing everything I can. It softens the bishop's heart. That's for sure. It was already soft to begin with. But it's interesting to see a bishop sometimes able to soften a creditor's heart. And I've seen bishops reach out to hospitals and just say, is there anything that can be done as a tax write-off on your side of things, for example, is there anything that can be done to minimize the expense of, of this poor person in my ward? And, and whether the bishop does that or you do that, uh, it's interesting to see that God can soften hearts until you're able to to do what he said at the very beginning, pay off your debt. That can go in both ways. and I've been on the I've been on both sides of that. I remember, I won't get into the, all the details of the story, but I remember, being $1,500 in debt because I had to pay for a car transmission. And I didn't have the money. I was trying to save up to buy a, a, my engagement ring for my wife uh, and didn't have enough money for that yet either. Um, and then $1,500 in the hole because of a transmission. And without anyone knowing how much I was out, my grandma ended up sending me a check for $500. And she just said, I wish I could do more, but I just heard you were in a, in a tight spot, and here's something. And my sweet little retired kindergarten teacher grandma I just had a soft heart and helped. And I thought, oh, i am only had 1,000. And then someone I wasn't even related to, but was aware of the situation, someone who has come to my rescue more times since, sent me a letter just saying, thanking me for some things, and there was a $1,000 check. And I couldn't believe that between the unsolicited generosity of these two people, down to the dollar, everything was covered. Because of the softness of their hearts. I was trying to be diligent. I was going to pay it off and earn the money somehow. I was trying to be humble and just accept the, the expense that was there. I was praying in faith for somehow to make it, and the Lord really did come through. I was grateful that I was able to be on the flip side once when we were going to be moving to Tennessee, but I knew I had a one-year assignment at BYU before that. Our home was this tiny little starter home that my grandpa had sold to us, um, and it was in Salt Lake, and we didn't want to do the commute down to BYU every day from Salt Lake. And so we decided to just rent out our house for a year and rent this tiny little basement apartment in Provo uh, with six of us in the family it was well five and then my child number four was on the way tiny little two-bedroom the the, the kind people like you want to fit five people and a pregnant wife in a two-bedroom like we're like "Hmm. if you think you can do it we'll we'll be willing to to let you and they, they were kind to do it but we found this sweet young couple uh not very well off but they wanted to rent our house for the year and then some things happened with his work and he couldn't pay the rent for several months and i just remember being desperate myself because it's like that rent i'm not making any profit on this that rent is just covering our rent uh so that we can then just keep paying our mortgage and and i remember sitting down with this good brother and just saying to him i i am not in a position to be able to pay both my rent and my mortgage um th- th- we really need you to be able to pay now this is one of those times where what well, you just evict the tenant right and you get a new a new renter that can pay and and that makes sense and I was even getting counsel from wise people who had been landlords before saying if anybody if a if a if a renter ever misses rent don't ever expect to get it back uh, chalk it up to a loss if you want to let them stay there in hopes they'll eventually pay some later rent fine because there's some time that. It usually takes time to replace them, so you'd be out a month or two rent anyway. And I'm like, I never wanted to be a landlord. I just want to teach the gospel, dang it. Um, I'm just trying to make things work so that we can move and have a house to sell so we can have a house to buy. And <sighs> Please, Heavenly Father. So there's the prayer of faith. And diligence and humility just trying. But there was also diligence and humility on the part of this, this poor man that was just trying to make ends meet and provide for his family in this little house he was renting for a year. And so we just held on, and we held on with him, and we, we worried with him and for him and for us. It was an empathetic experience. But what was amazing, because of his diligence and humility and his prayers of faith, he eventually got a better job that not only allowed him to pay the rent moving forward, but even to pay the rent that he'd missed, which, according to this landlord friend of mine, said, that's miraculous. That's miraculous. And well, it was all miraculous. And it came because of softened hearts, because people on both sides understood the situation and with humility were thinking of the other person more than just of themselves. I'm so grateful for people who have done that for me. And I want to be able to do that for others. Now, in 81, he gets more specific about their creditors. Write speedily to New York, and write according to that which shall be dictated by my spirit. He wants to be a part of the whole thing, even the, the debt reduction program. And I will soften the hearts of those to whom you are in debt, that it shall be taken away out of their minds to bring affliction upon you. It's like, oh, why didn't I foreclose? I don't know, I just didn't think about it. <laughs> or why didn't I just call, call it in and say, you've got to pay it up? I, no, I just... I didn't feel like I needed to afflict you more than you're already afflicted. I mean, you're in debt for a reason. And I trust you that you'll eventually pay. And so I can be patient. And that's exactly what happened with those New York creditors. 82, inasmuch as ye are humble and faithful and call upon my name, there it is again, those three, behold, I will give you the victory. And man, if you've ever heard somebody call in to Dave Ramsey and give their I'm debt free yell, It is a victory to get to a point where you are living within your means, whether because of greater diligence or because of greater humility. Either way, it's a a victory. 83, I give unto you a promise that you shall be delivered this once out of your bondage. I think that's a key passage about debt. God made all these great promises. And here's the deliverance he offers. But then he said, this once. He calls it bondage. That's key. There's some powerful quotes about debt as bondage and that interest compounding, it never sleeps and it never takes breaks and never gets sick and it's never on vacation and it's just constantly hounding you to ask you to or to require you to pay more. It is bondage. When it's, I am debt free, it's the freedom that that they're after. And when he says, I deliver you this once, There's something about learning from our mistakes. There's something about getting out of debt and staying out of debt. not going back into it. So take advantage of the time, the opportunity to change, and then make some permanent changes. He then wraps up this revelation with a few verses. 84, inasmuch as you obtain a chance to loan money by hundreds or thousands, even until you shall loan enough to deliver yourself from bondage, it's your privilege, so there's even a sense of what you do own, can any of that be mortgaged or leased or used as collateral, for example, to be able to get other loans that you can then, I mean, it's tricky as they're trying to make things work in Kirtland and in Missouri and, and, and make ends meet. But you can loan money, that's a privilege of yours, 85, and pledge the properties which I have put into your hands. Now oh, here's the collateral side of things. This one's. By giving your names by common consent or otherwise, as it seemed good unto you. And then 86, I give unto you this privilege, this once. And behold, if you proceed to do the things which I have laid before you, according to my commandments, all these things are mine, and ye are my stewards. And the master will not suffer his house to be broken up. Even so, amen. So he, he, that exclamation point at the end. Let me take it back to what I've said 24 other times in this revelation, your stewards. Be faithful and wise, worthy and competent, stewards, not owners, humble and diligent. Don't mock me. Look around and see your brothers and sisters in need and provide for them in my own way. It's what I've always wanted to do for my children. And the fact that he's <laughs> that if we recognize ourselves as stewards, that every steward has a a master, there is an owner, it's just not us, and when we recognize the Lord as our master, then we will hold to that promise at the end of this revelation. The master will not suffer his house to be broken up. I'm in this, and I've got this, and I'll take care of this. you in Kirtland financially them in in Missouri. Uh, not just economically, but also just to be redeemed and restored to their lands. Now we're getting into section 105. We're back to Zion's camp. In fact, we're now at its conclusion. While all of this has been happening, and they're working on all of this, Joseph Smith, I mean, we've got these missionaries that are out recruiting. We've got 230 uh, of the strength of mine house and my warriors, and we're ready to go. And Joseph Smith was... They were privileged to have Joseph lead them, and they start marching. It's a brutal march through the heat of a humid mid, uh, Midwest summer. But as they're getting closer and closer to Missouri, and as word is beginning to spread, especially among those in western Missouri, that what, what there's a Mormon army coming? Oh, we can't stand for that. Now, remember back in those earlier revelations, you have got to seek redress, and go to the judge, and go to the governor, and then go to the president. Well, they had gone to the governor. It wasn't Lilburn Boggs yet. It was Daniel Dunklin. And, but Governor Dunklin had had said to the saints, yeah, that's totally unjust. It's unfair. You're American citizens. You deserve the land that you've purchased. I mean, it's, it's your legal right. Uh, and so we need to be able to protect you. And so that's what the state militia is for. So, yeah, we, we, we can call out the militia to help... Return you to the the property that is rightfully yours in Jackson County, and Joseph and the Saints were banking on that. Uh, I mean, we wanted 500, we didn't get it. We wanted 300, we didn't get it. Well, 200 is better than 100. We meet that. We met the minimum. We doubled it, and with the, the Missouri government's help, as they do their job, then we should be okay. We're not seeking to fight. We just want to show that we're serious, uh, and and. It's not just it's not the the muskets that, that are going to make the difference. It's it's the moral high ground and coming and saying no, we're serious about this. We need, remember they're going to they're going to come and try to buy more land when they're there. Well, according the the story of Zion's Camp is beautiful, and there are other videos you can watch and there you can read the chapters and saints about it. It's an incredible journey, miracles along the way. But the ultimate miracle came right at the end of Zion's Camp when they're. They're right about there, and and they catch word that a Missouri militia of its own, not to come to help them, but one to come to destroy them, is on its way. You see, when all was said and done, Daniel Dunklin, governor, didn't do what he said he would do. The saints kept getting burned by government officials that way. Thomas Ford in Illinois wasn't much better. Uh, and Little Boggs was infinitely worse. But Dunklin said, no, I, I just, I can't. That would create even more harm than good. That would we'd have a real war in our hands, it'd be Missourians against Missourians. Well, how ironic that a generation later there would be a war with Missourians against Missourians, far worse than anything that could have happened in Jackson County in 1834. But we'll let them learn that lesson through the Civil War. When Joseph gets there and realizes we have no help, uh, we're going to have to go and redress at a higher level, and... And we barely had enough to get here, and there's no way this is going to work. God, what do you want us to do? You said you'd fight our battles for us. Well, now's, now's the time. We've got a mob, a militia coming to destroy us. What do we do? And as the members of Zion's camp described it, they, they're in between kind of these fork in, in the fishing river, and there's this uh, they're camping there, and they see this cloud on the horizon that begins to gather strength and size and darkness. And all of a sudden, a storm breaks out that they describe as the artillery of heaven, with with hail and and with a downpour. I mean, if you've if you're from the west and you think about rain, it doesn't this doesn't do justice to a Midwest rainstorm, and to the point that the rivers rose. So much that the, the mob and militia on its way couldn't cross it. And the saints, Zion's camp, hunkered down in this little Baptist church and in in surrounding uh, to just try to wait out the storm itself. And, but the storm saved them. You remember, this is supposed to be Moses and delivering the children of Israel from bondage, and that pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke didn't just guide their journey, it also protected them from Pharaoh's host. And a similar thing was happening there. They, they felt as much when it was happening. But as the storm ceases and the clouds clear, as the Missourians go licking their wounds and the saints come to, to grips with what do we do from here, a revelation comes to Joseph. And it's section 105. And it comes as quite a surprise to all who went and thought that Zion was to be redeemed by a specific kind of power, when the Lord had a different kind of power in mind. In section 105, verse 1, the the last of these Zion camp revelations, he says, Verily I say unto you, who have assembled yourselves together, that you may learn my will concerning the redemption of mine afflicted people. That's how he said it earlier, right? He doesn't say I have the redemption of my land. It's the redemption of my people. Yes, the, the, the pin will still hold in the map. But my children will be scattered, and my children are my priority. Let's, let's work on you. Let's redeem my afflicted people first. The land, we'll, we'll, we'll get back as soon as we're prepared to receive it. Verse 2, Behold, I say unto you, were it not for the transgressions of my people, speaking concerning the church and not individuals, they might have been redeemed even now. That verse summarizes so much of what we've seen in previous revelations. First, it's about you saints. Don't worry about the Missourians. Yes, I'm aware of them. I consider them mine enemies too. But Lord, is it I? Say that one first and take care of the part that you can control. It's your transgressions that are causing this. And I'm speaking concerning the church, not individuals. Now, that's an interesting one because back in section one, when the Lord says, this is the only true and living church upon the face of the earth with which I, the Lord, am well pleased. And then he clarifies, well, speaking collectively and not individually. It's like collectively, I accept you and love you and you're true and living and I'm pleased with you. But there's some, some problems here that you need to fix. Well, here's kind of the opposite. He's, in a way, condemning the church collectively. It's your transgression. And I'm speaking of the church, not just of individuals. Because there's some, some good exceptions to the rule. Section one was, I'm speaking collectively, and there's, but there's some bad exceptions. Here, I'm speaking collectively, even though there's some good exceptions. You see the common thread? The fact that he's speaking collectively? That's what Zion is. One heart, one mind. You're all in this together. You are your brother's keepers. And so it's not enough for you to be righteous. You need to, and I don't mean guilt other people into righteousness or shame them into righteousness, but lead them and inspire them into righteousness through your own." And like he said at the end, ah, you could have been redeemed even now. Remember he said that back in section 101 that there's enough right now, an abundance to redeem Zion at this moment. This is the the wander, wander, die principle we talked about last week. You're on the banks of the Jordan River, just cross it and conquer. You're at the base of Sinai and the good stuff, the higher stuff is on the tablets. Don't ruin things with the golden calf. You're, you're in Missouri now. Fishing River, you're right there. You're in, in Jackson County, the saints own property. Just build the tower, build the temple. Obey my voice. Could we have avoided the whole western migration to Salt Lake? That's a counter-history I would be fascinated to to understand. These verses sure seem to suggest that possibility. If you'll you'll simply repent of your transgressions and follow my counsel. That's what he gets at in verse 3. Behold, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands. They're full of all manner of evil. They do not impart of their substance as becometh saints to the poor and afflicted among them. They're not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. You see the flip side of Zion in verse 3 and 4? This whole time you've been trying to build it, but you haven't been doing much to become it. You have to be of one heart and one mind. And instead, you're not united according to the union required of the law of the celestial kingdom. You must dwell in righteousness, and instead, you're full of all manner of evil. There must be no poor among you, and instead, you are not imparting of your substance to the poor and afflicted. By definition, you are not Zion. So, of course, you can't be in Zion. You can't build it. The the power by which Zion will be redeemed is not a power you are producing and verse 5, Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself. So, to build a celestial place, you have to be a celestial people, and you're not there yet. That's okay. I'm eternal. I can wait. I've done this before. And thus we begin the wander, wander, die. And hopefully, a wander, wander, learn to live. Learn to live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. Learn the law of the celestial kingdom and learn to live it. In verse 6, my people must needs be chastened until they learn obedience. If it must needs be by the things which they suffer, sooner or later I will have a humble people. I'll have an obedient people. And even if you have to go through hard things to get there, that is the ultimate destination. And I can't lower the bar. You have to learn to clear it. In 7, I speak not concerning those who are appointed to lead my people, who are the first elders of my church, for they are not all under this condemnation. Again, those are some of the positive exceptions to the rule. But I'm still speaking to the church collectively. So even if the leaders are ready, that's Moses for you, right? Again, when I said Joseph's going to be the Moses character in this story, well, Moses, if there was ever somebody who, who wanted and was worthy of crossing the Jordan and going to the Promised Land, it was Moses. Uh, it was Joshua and Caleb. And they got to. But in this one, it's, it's not the leader's fault. They're not all under condemnation. But, verse 8, I speak concerning my churches abroad. There are many who will say, where is their God? Behold, he will deliver them in time of trouble. Otherwise, we will not go up unto Zion and we'll keep our monies. Now, 8 is saying a lot. There's some possibilities here of what's keeping them back. It's these other churches abroad. One's back in Kirtland. Well, a lot of those gathered uh, with Zion's camp. Well, other branches of the church. Remember Joseph's mission back in Perrysburg, New York? All these eastern branches. And it's interesting the question on their mind. I mean, they heard Sidney Rigdon and others go and preach the the recruiting mission of what's going on. We need the strength of mind house. And we need money to be able to redeem Zion and, and be able to buy food along the way and make this journey and so on. But what are they asking there are many who will say, where's their God? Now that seems to suggest too little faith. It's like, where's God in all of this? Uh, have, we, have we offended him? Is, is this even God's church and kingdom? We can't even pull off a settlement in, in Missouri? We're not Zion, I don't, I don't know. Where's God in all of this? But the way he continues the question, I wonder if it's not too little faith. Maybe it's too much in a weird sort of a way. A faith at the expense of works. When he says, where is their God? Behold, he will deliver them. Hmm. Is that a sense of, I don't need to help. God has this. It's either I'm not going to help because God's not in it. Or I'm not going to help because God can do it without me. You see, the common denominator is I'm not going to help. Even though if you come at it from too little faith or too much quote unquote faith that doesn't include any work to back it up. And no wonder they say at the end, if not, otherwise... We're not going to go, in other words, we're not going to join Zion's camp, and we'll keep our monies, so we're not going to contribute either. There seems to be something there of, we'll prove first that this is going to work, and I'll chip in. Go redeem Zion, then I'll decide whether I want to help redeem Zion. It's like, did you not hear yourself? It's already done. It's too late. It's like, get the return on the investment, and then I'll invest my monies. Uh, <laughs> It's too late to invest now. Uh, stocks are high. We, well, I didn't want to invest when it was low because I didn't know if it was ever going to go high. There I was risky. Well, welcome to the world of faith. Way more than the world of finance. It's, I don't know yet. Where is God? Is this going to work? Are we going to be able to redeem Zion? What, what kind of sacrifices and tribulation must I endure before the blessings come? But if you have sufficient faith and even sufficient obedience, and since you were called upon to, to contribute and to participate, then the victory will come. Faith will precede the miracle, but you'll receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. And they failed that one. And therefore, in verse 9, in consequence of the transgressions of my people, It is expedient in me that mine elders should wait for a little season for the redemption of Zion. Now, nine is a short verse, but man, it would have weighed heavy on the ears of anyone who heard it. That was the jaw drop kind of, wait, wait, what did Joseph just say? What did he just write? What did the Lord just reveal? Wait for a little season for the redemption of Zion. I'm 900 miles from home. We marched all this way, and I'm, I'm ready to fight. There were some who saw verse 9 as the ultimate relief. The ones that had been renouncing war and proclaiming peace all along. The ones that wanted to stay on that higher moral ground, high ground and, and not, not fight at all. And it was against the better angels of their nature, but it's a necessary evil, and we have to go avenge for the Lord. Those ones saw verse 9 and and praised God for turning aside his wrath. There were others that were angry that they didn't get to fight. And there's something about that bloodthirstiness that can never be part of, of the the lamentable requirement to sometimes shed blood in war. That, that that was not Captain Moroni, okay? But there but there's the answer. They could have stopped the revelation right then. It's, we're not going to fight. We're not going to redeem Zion because we're not Zion-like enough to do it. It's in consequence of our transgressions. We can't build it because we can't be it. Verse 10, That they themselves may be prepared. And that my people may be taught more perfectly and have experience and know more perfectly concerning their duty and the things which I require at their hands. Now, verse 10 tells us a little bit more of what Zion's camp was supposed to accomplish. Then, Remember, I said at the beginning, that it's this parent that keeps backpedaling. The, the goal is right here. Keep, what, you're almost there. Come redeem Zion. Get to, get to, you got the fishing river. It's almost, almost a success. And then backpedal. Well, what are you doing? I thought I'd made it. Well, not quite. You need to keep strengthening your legs and building some balance. And what was Zion for then? In their lifetime, it was never about reaching the father's outstretched arms. It was about learning to walk. And boy, did they learn to walk after 900 miles there and 900 miles back. And longer for some. This was about being prepared it was about being taught more perfectly. No wonder they needed to pray that Joseph would come with them. Who better to teach them the laws of the celestial kingdom than one who'd had visions of it? Who better to, to teach them more perfectly than one who'd had the veil part and be taught by, by messengers of heaven? No wonder Zion's camp needed to gain experience. Again, that's Brigham Young's statement. Everything I did on the journey to uh, Salt Lake, I learned on the journey to independence. No wonder they needed to know more perfectly their duty. And if there's one word that's synonymous with military, it's duty. And they're figuring it out. Science camp did so much good for the members of it. uh, beyond To become a Zion people regardless of what it did with any kind of Zion place. And that was only part of it. Verse 11 is the other part. This, all that was described in verse 10, all of this growing up in God, all of this progress, this cannot be brought to pass until mine elders are endowed with power from on high. You were never going to have the the, the land of God without the house of God. You were never going to be able to build Zion without a temple anyway. Why do you think I kept telling the people in Zion to build their temple? You've got to erect this tower. It's the only hope you have. Same with you in Kirtland. I, I'm try, I sent you to the Ohio to be endowed with power from on high. You'll never get to Zion without that endowment of power. Because it is, if Zion is to be redeemed by power, that's specifically the power that I'm talking about. The power of the endowment, the power of the celestial kingdom, the power of covenants with Christ. And since they didn't build a temple in in independence and since you haven't yet built the temple in Kirtland no wonder you're not ready for Zion it's not there's no way to prepare for it yet you'll get there verse 12 behold I have prepared a great endowment and blessing to be poured out upon them there's the windows of heaven opening inasmuch as they are faithful and continue in humility before me those two halves always come together to be the whole Verse 13, therefore it is expedient in me that mine elders should wait for a little season for the redemption of Zion. Just in case you're still kind of scratching your head or like wiggling your ears, kind of like, did I hear that right? Um, From verse 9, yes you heard it right. I'll say it again in 13. Verse 14 he keeps explaining, for behold I do not require at their hands to fight the battles of Zion. For as I said in a former commandment, even so will I fulfill. I will fight your battles it was never about you coming to, with with musket in hand it was you showing that you would be obedient in all things and then that would that would open the that would part the veil that would open the windows of heaven i would come through problem was that not only the people that were here in zion but you zion's camp along the way you weren't always very zion like there was some some problems among the members of zion's camp with Like I said, if it's going to be Moses and Israel, well, Israel has a whole lot of murmuring, past and present. Verse 15 Behold, the destroyer I have sent forth to destroy and lay waste mine enemies. And not many years hence, they shall not be left to pollute mine mine heritage and to blaspheme my name upon the lands which I have consecrated for the gathering together of my saints. It's like of all the places to be wicked, not here in independence. Not, don't blaspheme my name in the very place that I want to affix my name to. The day will come, not many years hence, they won't be left to pollute this inheritance. For now, it's the saints that are being spewed out of the land because much was given and and much was required. They didn't live up to it. But as the Missourians, well, much was given them too, namely the U.S. Constitution, that required them to defend and protect the freedom of all flesh. And they didn't. So they didn't live up to their level of expectation, and they will be spewed out of the promised land too. Like I said, few states in, the, in, the, in America suffered quite as much as Missouri did in the Civil War. And what's interesting at the beginning of 15 is when he says, the destroyer I have sent forth to destroy and lay waste mine enemies. Now, did the Lord cause it or did he just allow it? Earlier we saw, I suffered you to go through these afflictions because of your transgressions. There is something, though, about just allowing the destroyer to go forth to destroy and lay waste mine enemies. It's like, wait a minute. The destroyer is the Lord's enemy, too. Why would he destroy his own people? Well, that's part of the adversary's idiocy uh, of uh, he seeks that all men might be miserable like unto himself. He turns on his own people. Korihor learned that, right? Uh, thus we see that, those, that Satan does not support his children at the last day, but speedily drags their souls down to hell. Uh, and we see that it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. So it's interesting that the saints are gathered out. They are expelled from the state and then expelled from the union and all, all this bad news following bad news. And now they're off in some desert get to blossom as the rose. That's rough. But then again they did escape the civil war and to see the destroyer loosed on what was left behind and they end up destroying themselves like I said by the wicked the wicked are punished it's like the Jaredite battles that ended up being a a a war of mutual extermination Uh, or the Nephites that even once the Lamanites destroyed the Nephites well they're still not done being bloodthirsty, so now they turn on themselves. The destroyer does destroy itself. They, they dig a pit and fall into themselves. themselves. Interesting ironies there. Then verse 16, Behold, I have commanded my servant Joseph Smith Jr. to say unto the strength of my house, even my warriors, my young men, my middle-aged, to gather together for the redemption of my people. Throw down the towers of mine enemies. Scatter their watchmen. He did exactly as he was asked. But did they do as I asked. 17 says no. The strength of mine house have not hearkened unto my words. Joseph did what was asked of him, but you didn't do what was asked of you. You wouldn't hearken. 18, inasmuch as there are those who have hearkened unto my words, I have prepared a blessing and an endowment for them, if they continue faithful. That would be an endowment in the temple in Kirtland, once it was built. That would be a call to the Quorum of the Twelve for many of them. So many of those who were part of the original Quorum of the Twelve and members of the Seventy proved themselves, prepared themselves, learned more perfectly, gained experience, learned more perfectly their duty during science camp. And ultimately they received the prepared blessing, the endowment. Verse 19, I have heard their prayers. I will accept their offering. It is expedient in me that they should be brought thus far for a trial of their faith. Sound like Abraham? You needed to make the journey to Mount Moriah. You needed to build the altar. You needed to arrange the wood. You needed to lay down your son. And you needed to raise him up again. The hand was stayed because you proved yourself faithful. Now some of this, you proved, some proved themselves unfaithful. You're not Zion yet. But those who did prove themselves faithful... And you're all in this together, so collectively you can't establish a collective Zion. But you beautiful exceptions to the rule, I do accept of your offering. You passed your Abrahamic test, even if there aren't the kinds of results to show for it that you expected going into it. That was your trial of faith, and you passed it. In 20, now verily I say unto you, a commandment I give unto you, that as many as have come up hither that can stay in the region roundabout, let them stay. You came all this way, stay here in Zion. They're going to need your help. Okay? Believe me, the, Missourians, the, I mean, excuse me the, the members of the church in Missouri are going to need all the help they can get. And you strong warriors, my young men, can make a great difference here. So if you can stay, do stay. 21, those that cannot stay who have families in the East, let them tarry for a little season, inasmuch as my servant Joseph shall appoint unto them. <laughs> Which makes me laugh, because I'm like, in 20, if you can stay, stay. And then 21, and if you can't stay, stay anyway. At least for a little while. Joseph will, will counsel you and let you know when you need to go back. But you're, you've already made all this way. Help when you can. Do something before you return. 22, I will counsel him concerning this matter. And all things whatsoever he shall appoint unto them shall be fulfilled. He, Joseph has earned the Lord's trust here. He had it long before. 23, let all my people who dwell in the regions round about. So what about those who were already here? The ones that got driven out, partly because of their own transgressions. What should they be doing? Let them be very faithful and prayerful and humble before me. That's how you get in, out of debt to your creditors. It's how you get out of trouble to your enemies it's still faithfulness and prayerfulness and humility before God. And be a little wiser than you've been. Reveal not the things which I have revealed unto them until it is wisdom in me that they should be revealed. You, you guys came in with guns blazing. When, and like, Hey, guess what, uh, m- m- citizens of independence? This is our land. God has promised it to us. It's the center place. I mean, you're welcome to stay if you want to join our church. Man, that's not... If you're the new kid on the block, don't come in threatening everyone else that's like, well, eventually you'll be evicted because all this land belongs to me. That's not a good way to win friends and influence people. So you need to be more faithful to live up to God's blessings to begin with, or it'll never be Zion. You need to be more humble about things because you've got some work to do on the way. You've got to be the prayers of faith because it's not happening right now. And man, you've got to be better neighbors. Don't go around trumpeting destruction and judgment. That's so what he says in 24. Talk not of judgments. Neither boast of faith nor of mighty works. Don't, say, don't make it out that you're better than they are. But carefully gather together, as much in one reason, a region as can be, consistently with the feelings of the people. That's interesting. You have to be aware of how people feel about you. And that's true of not just moving into an area, but moving into a new job or a new calling or a new assignment and just kind of getting a feel for the people around you yes, I want my light to shine before them. But I don't want to blind them on the first day. I mean, even when he says, don't reveal these things until it's wisdom. This revelation wasn't even in the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants because they were still a little hesitant. Like, I don't know if we want the people in Missouri to read our Doctrine and Covenants and realize that we still have eyes on on Western Missouri. And it's just a, I don't know, some time that needs to pass before we'll eventually redeem it. Like, no, we're not, we're not even going to, Publish this with scripture until later. We have to be more careful. We have to be more wise. We have to be more sensitive to the feelings of those around us. And I'm grateful for that. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of compassion and understanding and recognizing the reality of the people that, that are all around us. In Utah, even when we're the, well, especially when we're, where we're the majority, we need to be more careful about the feelings of other people. And if you're the minority uh, in your community, neighborhood, or circle of friends, you need to be sensitive to their feelings as well. I'm not saying lower your standards, but maybe lower your voice a few decibels. uh, Lower your contentiousness. That should be gone all the way. Uh, But interesting things to, to consider. Verse 25, Behold, I will give unto you favor and grace in their eyes. That you may rest in peace and safety while you are saying unto the people execute judgment and justice for us according to law and redress us of our wrongs see in some ways god is trying to buy them time it takes time to seek redress at the judge and then the governor and then the president it takes time to to win the hearts and minds of of public opinion As it takes time to to prove that you're on higher moral ground and to gather testimonies that you're the one turning all the cheeks and that you're an innocent victim rather than a a guilty uh, co-perpetrator. So do your very best to to buy yourself time by being good neighbors, by seeking the favor and grace of, of those around you so you can dwell in peace and safety. Keep working on those other things. You deserve it. That's justice. But play to their sense of mercy while you're playing to their sense of justice. Be good, neighbors. 26, now behold, I say unto you, my friends, in this way you may find favor in the eyes of the people until the army of Israel becomes very great. That's the part, yeah, I probably wouldn't publish. Like, wait, wait, you're still working on this army? Well, he didn't want 500 originally. Uh... And the army, again, we've got to think past military here. It's a different kind of power that will redeem Zion. 27, I will soften the hearts of the people as I did the hearts of Pharaoh. Oh, he keeps going with that analogy. From time to time, until my servant Joseph Smith Jr. and mine elders whom I have appointed shall have time to gather up the strength of my house. It is interesting how many times Pharaoh kind of waffled on his, his enemy ship and softened some things and made some allowances before hardening his heart again. Ultimately, it, he had to be overcome, and that will be the case there too, but, but the, you can buy time. Verse 28, to have sent wise men to fulfill that which I have commanded concerning the purchasing of all the lands in Jackson County that can be purchased and in the adjoining counties round about. We're still doing this Caesar's way, legally, lawfully, with titles and deeds and purchasing things. 29. It is my will that these lands should be purchased, and after they are purchased that my saints should possess them according to the laws of consecration which I have given. And after these lands are purchased, I will hold the armies of Israel guiltless in taking possession of their own lands. Justice demands that, which they have previously purchased with their monies of throwing down the towers of mine enemies that may be upon them and scattering their watchmen and avenging me of mine enemies unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me." Oh, so that goes back to that parable uh, and that we're going to conquer the land. That's what they thought of originally. But again, it's a matter of, it has has to be done in mine own way. If we're providing for the poor in mine own way, we got to redeem Zion in mine own way too. And part of that is legally and lawfully. We're, We're purchasing it all. And part of it is to do it worthily. Lawfully will be will be is doing it right in the eyes of the Missourians. Worthily is to do it right in the eyes of God. And I'm buying Zion, and becoming Zion before I ever build Zion. Okay, especially before I ever battle for Zion. Now then, thirty-one. First, let my army become very great. And that's not just quantity. Let it be sanctified before me. Ah, there's quality. That it may become fair as the sun and clear as the moon, and that her banners may be terrible unto all nations. That is the church coming out of the wilderness. That's apostasy ending. And not just worldwide, the great apostasy. It's LDS apostasy. It's the people there in Zion that weren't being like Zion. Come out of the wilderness. You're still in it. And I don't just mean the edge of the American frontier. I mean a spiritual wilderness where the natural man is running amok. You've got you to clean things up. You have to conquer. The, that's the battle you're fighting and that you need to win. 32, that the kingdoms of this world may be constrained to acknowledge that the kingdom of Zion is in very deed the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Therefore, let us become subject unto her laws. Talk about winning the hearts and minds. Talk about holy envy. We saw that in a previous revelation where it's like they will admit that this is the Zion of our God. It's like it's our God but it's their Zion but that Zion belongs to our God. We've been trying to pull this off and they succeeded. I want to be part of that. Great missionary opportunity, right? Same thing here. It's like let us become subject unto her laws. There's the way they're living (sighs) I want to live like that. I want to live with that. Even if I don't have all their same beliefs, because this isn't just mass conversion it's describing, but it is a conversion to a lifestyle of honesty, of humility, of equality, of accountability, of peace. Remember section 45 where it ends that the only place that isn't at war with one another, this is destroying destroyers, destroying other destroyers, is Zion. It's the only one where we're at peace one with another. No wonder they want to come and be subject to those laws. Uh, There's the holy envy of a true Zion people. 33, Verily I say unto you, it is expedient in me that the first elders of my church should receive their endowment from on high in my house, which I have commanded to be built unto my name in the land of Kirtland. So for now, yes, we will have to put on hold the, the temple in independence. The The pin will still be in the map. We still will someday build a temple there. But for now, shift your focus to the temple in Kirtland so that you can have an endowment. You will never redeem Zion until that endowment of power comes your way. Verse 34, Let those commandments which I have given concerning Zion and her law be executed and fulfilled after her redemption. So it'll be a while. We'll get there. But she needs to be redeemed in the Lord's own way and the Lord's own timing. 35, there has been a day of calling, but the time has come for a day of choosing, and let those be chosen that are worthy. Many are called, but few are chosen. Well, many were called to Zion's camp. 230 responded. Of those who were called and responded, how many would be then chosen? Because they truly showed throughout the camp that they had chosen God. Some were called and went, but never ended up getting chosen because of their transgressions along the way, the murmuring Israelites. But the Twelve Apostles, the Quorum of the Seventy, oh, they were called, responded, and then were chosen because of the choices they made along the way. 36, it shall be manifest unto my servant by the voice of the Spirit those that are chosen, and they shall be sanctified. That's the calling of the Quorum of the Twelve shortly, the following year. And inasmuch as they follow the counsel which they receive, they shall have power, after many days, to accomplish all things pertaining to Zion. We'll get there. The power will come, but the power is required. And only once it's there, after many days, will accomplish what is promised of Zion. 38 then, Again I say unto you, Sue for peace, not only to the people that have smitten you, but also to all people. In fact, lift up an ensign of peace. Make a proclamation of peace unto the ends of the world. It's like, say it, raise the, raise the flag, make a proclamation. Proclaim peace, renounce war. You're doing this. Even the fact that you gathered an army to go and then renounced it. It's like we are willing to fight, but we choose not to. We're trying to stay on that higher moral ground and maintain it. Verse 40, make proposals for peace unto those who have smitten you according to the voice of the Spirit which is in you and all things shall work together for your good. How many times did we see that in previous revelations regarding the redemption of Zion? It's all going to work out. I can make beauty from ashes. These are some dark streaks, but they're the shadows that will bring out the light. Trust me in that. And in the meantime, 41, be faithful. And behold, and lo, I am with you even unto the end. Even so, amen. I am with you until I come. As you're trying to prepare the earth for the second coming, I'm still here with you individually whenever you're worthy. Collectively is my dream. Just become Zion along the way. Now, like I said, there were some who were bitter about this. Some that were participants in Zion's camp and others who were spectators of Zion's camp. Some, when they came back to Kirtland, and others were like, "What what a waste, what a colossal waste of time and of effort. All these blisters you got along the way. And some even died of cholera, including some righteous people. The sun shines and the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. And sometimes we have to pay the price for someone else's sins. And that was the case there too. But to see those who came, not just called, but were chosen, and their response to Zion's camp, what was it all for? Oh, I'm sure they would have admitted it wasn't for what I thought it was going to be for. Uh, yeah, God had different plans in mind. But his plans, oh, were filled, fulfilled so far beyond anything I would have imagined for myself. Joseph Smith said to them, Brethren, some of you are angry with me because you did not fight in Missouri. But let me tell you, God did not want you to fight, at least not fight the Missourians. He wanted you to fight the natural man. He could not organize his kingdom with 12 men to open the gospel door to the nations of the earth and with 70 men under their direction to follow in their tracks unless he took them from a body of men who had offered their lives, who had made as great a sacrifice as did Abraham now the Lord has got his 12 and his 70. As he said this one that once they were organized. And there will be other quorums of 70s called who will make the sacrifice and those who have not made their sacrifices and their offerings now will make them hereafter. In a way, every church leader has gone through their version of Zion's camp. They were called and responded and lived in such a way that they were chosen. Brigham Young was one such and he said... I told those brethren that I was well paid, paid with heavy interest. Yea, that my measure was filled to overflowing with the knowledge that I had received by traveling with the prophet. Do we understand what Brigham Young understood? Wilford Woodruff said similar things. So many of those early saints that, ah, oh, what did you get out of Zion's camp? I got everything, I, more than anything I bargained for. And everything that God was promising me, I became more of Zion and I'm all the more prepared to build it whenever God calls upon me to do so." It's interesting just reading and studying these sections this week in the midst of the US military's withdrawal from Afghanistan and seeing what's happening there as the Taliban is surging back and there's kind of a descent into chaos and to see the, the humanitarian crisis that is that is spreading there, and my heart to go out to those who are suffering in Afghanistan, and my heart to go out to the U.S. military personnel, past and present, who made such a sacrifice to be there for the last 20 years. And now they're being pulled back and wondering, was any of what I did worth it? And family who lost loved ones, and men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice there, and was it worth it? Was it worth it? That's the question of Zion's camp and the question of so much of what we do that doesn't end up turning out the way that we envisioned. I read one article that made a point that really impressed me. And the question was broader than just Afghanistan. It was, what's the point of sacrifice at all? And sometimes we think of sacrifice has to bring success or it wasn't worth it. And his point was, well, in that case, sacrifice is merely... Transactional. We did it for this. It's a transaction. I'll do this, you do that, and the sacrifice only is valuable if the transaction is completed. And his point was sacrifice was never meant to be merely transactional. Sacrifice is meant to be transcendent. It goes so far above and beyond any merely mortal results. Sacrifice is transcendent in that it shows that what we're seeking, what we're trying to accomplish, transcends any lesser desires or... or you understand what I'm trying to say here? It, it, it goes so far beyond I'm proving that something is worth it to me. Whether or not I actually obtain that thing, I'm showing that it is worth my life itself, military men and women for the last 20 years, proving to the people of Afghanistan that your life is worth mine, that your freedom is worth my sacrifice, that your safety is worth my danger. And whether or not that comes and is fulfilled permanently, whether or not Zion is redeemed in their day or in a future one, My willingness to sacrifice transcended things to say to you that you are worth it. Zion, my friends, is worth it. It's worth whatever sacrifice of sin or of self. It's worth the consecration of time and of talent. It's worth repenting of our transgressions and truly becoming one. Because only by sacrificing those lesser things will we ever become the Zion that God is asking us to become.